Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 102. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Now I'm going to stick this show out day early because I've just had a little look at it and oh, she's a big one. Oh, she's a big lass. So it's coming nearly three bloody hours for God's sake. So I'll have to give you this one a day early. So there you go. This is a show where in my introduction, I want to kind of lay out me wares. Do you know what I mean? Where Starship Sova wants to go, what's which writers we've got coming on board or which stories we've got narrated, you know, just to kind of give you an idea, a glimpse into the future where Starship's going. We've also got some, you know what I mean, we've got some fantastic work. Got probably one of the kind of hottest, you know, Charlie Stross, the hottest writer out there at the minute probably, you know, keeps on trying to get a Hugo Award there, but still, you know, still doesn't get one, but regarded as, you know, like quintessentially one of the kind of greats now. So we've got a story by him. We've got Fact Article by J.J. Campanella. We have, as you notice, this month is the the end of the month, which means it's a cover artwork for Starship Sova. She's dressed in her finest today by Evan Forsh. This is to accompany the Charlie Strauss story, and I'll give you a little brief on Evan a little bit later on. We have poem by Lynn C.A. Gardner. We have a Fact Article by Rod Barnett. Flash fiction comes from Fabio Fernandez. We've had a great story by Fabio and we've got another one as well. So thank you, Fabio, for that. New titles comes as well at the end of the show. We have that. I wonder which... (laughs) Have a guess which new title might be in there. (laughs) Come on, man. Give us a break. And we have also... Mr. Larry Santuru with his little process report, progress report. I think he's he's changing it there now. <laughs> Listen to Larry going through these Helen back to bring this story to to us. It's fantastic. So that is Starship Sofa's Oral Delights for show one hundred and two. I hope you will stick around and enjoy the show. <laughs> First up then is the editorial. And this, like I say, this is just me really going to... And excuse me if I go on. I I don't mean to go on, but this might be kind of... I don't think it'll be a long editorial or a short one. I've got loads of notes, but I can somehow seem to skip over notes and make them dead short. Or, the other words, dead long, you know what I mean? So, 
I'll tell you what's been happening, what's going on. First up, we have 85 copies of the book in various formats have been sold, which I think is staggering. I would still like more, do you know what I mean? And give me my dues, I will press on pushing that to you. The... 85 is, oh, don't get us wrong, mind you, 85 is a great number, do you know what I mean? It's just, every every day, it's, it's happening kind of, say, two, two, three in a day is kind of getting sold, which is just, you know what I mean, and it's reminding us, you know, this is kind of a funny thing, and it's, I'm becoming obsessed by it, and I, and I need to kind of actually step away from it, because it's just like, I'm getting, ob- like, say, obsessed. But it's a bit like when I used to do the artwork for eBay, I used to kind of paint these kind of three canvases, you know, and and this kind of modern arty stuff, and you'd list it on, and then I would be constantly checking to see if there's bids on it, and it got to the point where it was, you know, and it was like addictive, but it was, you know, you kind of, you know what addiction's like, just gets on your nerves in the end, and I was kind of, this is where this Lulu's going, you know, like, I'll just check there, I'll just check there, you know, I'm, I'm going up to work, and I'll just check on my phone, oh my god, a sale, so, yes, 85, I think probably, mind you, seven of them, I've been trying to work out, is myself and Dee has been buying some just for kind of proof copies and stuff like that. But it's still a good number. But please, you know what I mean, get yourself a copy. Come onto the forums. There's actually some pictures there on the forums of different, you know, the different covers and different styles of it. So that's quite nice if you you can have a look at a kind of physical copy. And Dee is now... Take a big breath here. (laughs) Sorry. D has now got the kind of first hardback edition. And it's actually hardback in the way it's called case wrapped, which is think of it like a like a hard <laughs> hardback. Hardback, but without the kind of the, the actual picture on the front. Oh, yeah, what's what's the best way to describe it? You know, like kind of the actual picture is painted on printed on the actual hard book if if one for a better word do you know what I mean like the kind of say the old style annuals you know like kind of eagle has landed you know them kind of hard back ones and D just says it is tremendous you know he's saying just keep this one as the one for next year which actually that's I quite like the idea of having different copies, you know, different styles and different versions of the book but D seems to I haven't actually seen this one yet I was actually <laughs> tight, me. I was actually waiting for D to say, "Yes, it's okay." Then I'll go and order me copy. I didn't want to kind of order it, you know, just in case. Let, let D be the fall guy. Do you know what I mean? Let D shell out, and then. But apparently, it's it's. He's actually thinks it's amazing, and he's put the the three on the forum so you can go and have a look at it as well. So, what else is going to happen with Starship Sofa? Well. I'm reigniting the shop, so eventually, and this is, you know, plain and simple, this is all to kind of just generate a little bit of kind of income, so Starship Sofa can kind of just keep on going without hassle like that, and God forbid, maybe, (laughs) maybe put a couple of pounds in my pocket, do you know what I mean? The idea would be lovely if Starship Sofa could pay my kind, this is the, the, the dream, is to pay my petrol to get to work to do my normal job. Whether that happens you know, or not, we'll just have to wait and see. But I always believe in it's best to have as many little kind of rivlets into the main account, you know, like kind of drip feeding in, because you're never going to ever, ever, I don't think anyways, make 
enough money off kind of one fantastic idea on a podcast. Do you know what I mean? You've got to have loads of little revenues. So the shop is opening, and most of you have probably heard, even sick to death, at the old, the old shows. But there's around about a hundred of the old shows where myself and Kieran kind of just went in depth into like a, a, a writer. Do you know what I mean? Like a kind of an old science fiction writer, or even a new one. Do you know what I mean? Actually, we did a Charlie Stross one as well, and. It's just to give you, like, and it's, you know, if you're reading a book by, say, a writer, it's nice, that's a nice way of kind of dipping into into that. And like I say, I used to have this these shows for sale on the old show, or the actual old website. So that's going to get kind of kicked off again. My intention, well, I've actually started it, but I haven't started the recording as well, because there was some I kind of never got round to doing, and I got... Do you know what I mean? When we're kind of even going through the, the shows and doing them, but when they actually ended them shows, I got so many emails saying, you know, you're not going to do Asimov. You know, there was some like giants we never did. So it's my intention now to kind of do the ones that I never did and put them up for sale as well. And like you see, to be quite honest, the, the reason why Asimov was never done was the, the amount of kind of research, you know what I mean? And it's staggering. There's more paperwork, like A4 sheets of paper I've printed off, you know what I mean, than the kind of, the book that we've been doing, you know, the kind of proofreading copies. It's just, it's staggering the amount of work on Asimov, do you know what I mean? But I would like to do him, and it'd be, what I'm intention to do, you know, it's maybe, like I say, a three-hour kind of one-off show on Asimov's, and like I say, that'll go in the, the shop, and if anyone wants it, do you know what I mean, it'll be it'll there for a price. I also... Always wanted to do Ray Bradbury. Never got round to him. Arthur C. Clarke was another one. Do you know what I mean? These are kind of giants in the field that never got sorted out. So hopefully, you know, and, and they'll come when they come. Do you know what I mean? I'm certainly not going to put any pressure on us to kind of get them done. And what it's actually strange because I remember, you know, we used to kind of rattle these off every week. And now it's like, because I haven't done one for a while, it's certainly, you know what I mean? Especially this Asimov one. It's a daunting, you know. What I mean? I'm sometimes thinking. I'm actually sometimes thinking. Should I have mentioned? Shall I mention it here on this? You know, because that's kind of putting a little bit of pressure on us, anyways. So, anyway, those are going to come in the shop. What else is is coming is t-shirts. Yes, stop emailing us about t-shirts. They're coming. You know what I mean? It's now in the pro. The, the shop's nearly complete. Actually, you know, we need kind of Josh to kind of sorted out to make it all kind of linky up worky but there is t-shirts coming there d again has been busily making this different t-shirts and you know getting them all kind of up online ready to go here's like what i've thought about doing as well which i'm saying yes i'm gonna do if anyone wants to design a t-shirt give us send it in do you know what i want to do i don't want to have kind of loads and loads of images I'll pick one image. I mean, seeing that there might be two fantastic ones and it's hard to describe, hard to pick the, the nice one. But if you want to do an image for a T-shirt on Starship Sofa, please send one in. Do you know what I mean? We've got some great artists out there. If you've got an idea, get it on a T-shirt and send it over. Do you know what I mean? There you go. What else? Well, calendars for Christmas. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I was going to say how tacky, but you know what I mean? It's all little revenue drip-feeding into the Starship Sofa account. I've got the artwork. You know, like each month is kind of the artwork. But they would be nice in a calendar. 
And I would actually like, I don't know, I was trying to kind of work it out. I'm working it out now as I'm talking here. Is like, say, two different style calendars. One done in the old-fashioned 50s style, you know, the way the, the cover of the book is, and one is, is the modern style. I don't know, we'll see how it goes. It might be both combined onto one, have both pictures on one, or the 50s one might not come off. We will wait and see. I like the idea of, I like Skeet's female robot. Do you know what I mean? That's a, a great image, you know what I mean? And I want to do something with that, which would be really nice. What's, what else is coming then? Well, the usual cry for flash fiction. Please, if you've got flash fiction, the best way to have a look is to come, come over to the site, check on the, the kind of the submissions guideline, and you can check there what what we want and where we want to send it to. You know what I mean? That's the best place because it goes straight over to Grant Slush Monkey in New Zealand who will kind of pick pick the, the actual stories, do you know what I mean? So please. Again, narrators, always, always looking for narrators. That's the kind of... It, it was, is, I was, I'm trying to kind of think, it's probably just as important as the stories, do you know what I mean? Because if it was down to me narrating... <laughs> It wouldn't be a pretty sound, that's for sure. So please, you know what I mean, narrators, flash fiction, and something that I've never, we've never really had much of. If you've got an idea for an article, do you know what I mean? If your job, you think it, oh, you know, I could give a little 10 minute talk on that. That is gold to Starship Sofa, do you know what I mean? That will fire our engines for a, a few light years. So please, you know, again, get in touch with me, starshipsofa at gmail.com if you've got a good idea. For, you know, like a fact article. Now we're coming up to the end of the year. And I got in touch with Mark. Mark got in touch with me. Because it's if you remember the last year, the, the Sofa Nord Awards was like, after you know, a, a year which was like 50, oh, 52 weeks. We've now inched it a little bit further ahead. So, sort of, you know, further in the distance. So it's going to be like a roundup, you know, for the kind of the Christmassy uh, area somewhere around there so we announced like the kind of winners of that so look out for the new sofa notes you know awards coming you know, best best short story best flash fiction best narrator best you know fact article what i'm thinking is now we need a new name for because i didn't hijack the sofa notes for the sofa notes the show so we need a new name for this award, this annual award that Starship Sofa Star Step, <laughs> that Starship Sofa does for our awards. If you've got an idea, again, starshipsofa at gmail.com. Looking for a new award. Now, with going back to the kind of the book and you know all the different kind of versions and different copies. I've slowly been, you know what I mean, my emails have been trickling out and, you know, saying, you know, this is the book, there you go, please, you know, support the show. I got an email off Chris Brissy and it was a lovely email. She says, Tony, I've, I don't like stuff. I don't collect stuff. I don't really need the book. You know what I mean? It's, it's, and she didn't put it over nasty. You know, I don't want your bloody book, but she just says, it's, you know what I mean? It's just, I just, my life is not kind of focused around stuff. And it's funny, mind you, mine is. I'm like stuff mad. Do you know what I mean? And I'm a hoarder. And that's, that's a little bit of a me downfall, you know what I mean? Because we've got this, I'll just tell you this little story. We've got this big bloody loft in the house and full of stuff, you know what I mean? And I'll keep on saying, Melanie, you're going to have to sort that out because I'll, I'm just going to get up there. I'm going to, it's all your stuff. I'm going to take it all. There was, must have been about 25 bags of like, stuff 
And it was all, it wasn't even the kids' toys, you know, it was just stuff of mine, like old printers and old computer screens and just stuff. It's all being cleared. So now I'm, I'm knowing where Chris is coming from. She doesn't want stuff, but Chris has so kindly offered. She says, I will willingly, you know, if, if there's someone out there that would like a book and, you know, funds are a little bit short, Chris is going to stump up the cash and buy the book and send it over. So I just think that's, you know what I mean? What a lovely idea. Thank you so much, Chris. If anyone wants this book, please get in touch with us. Again, same email, starshipsover at gmail.com and tell us why you want it. And I'll actually forward the emails over to Chris. If there's any comers in, I'll forward the emails over to Chris. You know what I mean? And there you go. And Chris will sort that out. And one last thing with the books. With postage, you know, some countries, Lulu and Blurb, who we're going through, they don't post out to. You know, I guess it's just one of them things, you know. I've had a gentleman, Zoran, from Croatia. You know, <laughs> Lulu ain't going nowhere near Croatia with postage. So Zoran's asked if I would kind of buy it, do you know what I mean? Again, through my little emails, you know, kind of, would you like a copy? Zoran says, I they don't really send it to my country. You know, so I'm going to buy the, the copy for Zoran. I'm actually going to sign it for the lad and then post it out. So if anybody else is in that predicament, you know, again, starshipsover at gmail.com. Just email us. I'll certainly buy a copy and then post it out. You know, and literally my post office is, you know what I mean, straight over the road. So it's just a case of when the book comes to me, sign it, send it off. You know what I mean? If anybody wants a signed edition, you, again, please get in touch with us i can certainly do that so that's a few things of like what you know what i mean what's happening where's going i'll give you a little up get a little few kind of tidbits and in, into kind of what's or who's coming on the show in the future we have stories by bradley denton brian stapleford Corey doctorow eric brown jack mcdivitt another one by jeff vandermeer we've got a fantastic one by alan Steele. Captain Blood's Booty by Jeremiah Talbot. Jeremy on the sofa notes. That is just a cracking story. We've got that. M. John Harrison, more stuff by him. Norman Spinrad. Got a massive three-hour story by Norman Spinrad. Got some work by Paul DeFilippo. Gregory Frost, Karen J. Fowler. A great story again by Nina Kariki Hoffman. We have Michael Flynn, Yeti DeVere, Cage Baker, We've even got some stuff, the, the kind of old classics there. Got a, a one by Paul Anderson there coming up. Jason Sanford, Lewis Shiner, more by Ken Scholes. A great story by Paolo Bajaklubi. Robert Reed with a fantastic story called Five Thrillers. Steve Rancic Tem. We have two of the writers that won this year's Writers of the Future competition. Hopefully I'll be getting one of those out very soon. Another work by Michael Bishop. Got a had a story by Peter F. Hamilton for ages. I should get that one out. Got a big story coming up, hopefully for the October edition, the, the kind of artwork edition this October by Tad Williams as well. Big big blockbuster writer Tad Williams. Got a nice long story by Tad. So that is my kind of manifesto for Starship Sofa. Again, it's all kind of, a lot of it's geared around kind of supporting the show, which I apologise for if you're sick to death of me kind of rabbing on about money, but do you know what I mean? That's the way it is. 
Let's get into some poetry. Poetry comes by Lynn C. A. Gardner. Lynn has had stories and poems in Abbas and Apex, Challenging Destiny, The Doom of Camelot, The Leading Edge, Legends of Pendragon, Mythic Delirium as well. Two stories and a poem earned her honourable mentions in this year's Best Fantasy and Horror. Three poems have been nominated for the Risling Award. You can find everything about Lynn at GardnerCastle.com. I'll put a link on the site. Today's story is, or today's poem is, narrated by Diane Severson. Diane is getting so close to the birth. Yes, everyone, I hope when, when it comes, we'll give a big announcement out. I hope everything goes fine there, Diane. Oh, it must be hard work now. <laughs> so, Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Clone Assassin by Lynn C.A. Gardner, recited by Diane Severson. This is the clone assassin. This is the moment of truth when genes count. Do your DNA proud. Show some gratitude to the ones who made you, who labored to find this slice of speed, this quick touch, this talent for imperturbability in the face of death, so necessary at the sight of blood. These are the eyes so skillful at seeing in the dark, though admittedly blind by daylight. Dark glasses, a veil next to the skin. This is the clone assassin, long anticipated, long labored for, generations of failure and pain. A product, not a person. Now we hold the patent, the copyright, sell and demand, though the price is high, the best assassin money can buy. We own the process, start to finish, from the splicing to his greatest discipline, the necessary assassination of the self. The clone assassin first appeared in Starline, Journal of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, Volume 30, Issue 6, November-December 2007. Next up we have a fact article by Rod Barnett. Rod, what movie, sir? Hello, everybody. It's time to bring the 2009 summer season of science fiction and horror films to a resounding close. A great big crash, a big boom, a, a stop. But we got to do it with a film that actually surpassed my expectations. District 9 is one of the great surprises of the summer movie season. It is a big summer blockbuster sci-fi action-adventure disguised as a dramatic movie about the cruelty of the human species. Or is it that it, it's uh, maybe a drama about humanity's inherent cruelty as a species disguised as a big summer action blockbuster? Either way, it doesn't really matter. District 9 is simply amazing. The time is roughly today, but on an alternate Earth where history took a slightly different path right about 1982, when a huge alien spacecraft appeared over Johannesburg, South Africa. It appeared, and it just hovered there. No contact from the craft, no information available about why it's here, nothing. Other than the sighting of some type of object dropping from the bottom of the craft and then kind of disappearing into the cityscape almost immediately afterwards, nothing happened. After several days, the South African military flew up to the ship, cut their way inside, 
and found the inhabitants of the ship. Real, honest-to-goodness alien creatures. Realizing that they had to do something for the malnourished and weak bipedal aliens, the government shuttled them down from the ship and set them up in an out-of-the-way area near the city. After quickly establishing communication with the unexpected immigrants, it became clear that all of the creatures on the ship were of limited intelligence. Indeed, they seemed to fit the description of drones, with nary a leader of any type in evidence. It was surmised that some accident must have occurred that killed off the more intelligent members of the ship's crew, and that the ones left were simply too dim or uneducated to effect repairs on the craft. Even with verbal communications between humans and the aliens, who are referred to usually by the derisive term prawns, problems erupt between humans and aliens as people begin to fear them, and after a few riots break out, the government steps in. Walls are erected around the alien area, termed District 9, and strict rules about their comings and goings are put into place to keep humans and aliens separate. As the film begins, the decision has been made to move the newcomers from District 9 to a new compound built further out away from Johannesburg. The man put in charge of this operation is Vikas van Demir, and we can see right off the bat that he is not exactly the best man for the job. A mid-level bureaucrat in MNU, the large corporation that has been put in charge of dealing with the prawns, he is appointed to the task by the head of the organization, mainly because Vicus is married to this man's daughter. Vicus is a nervous man, clearly in over his head, but trying gamely to keep a stiff upper lip and do his incredibly difficult job as best he can. One of the most fascinating elements of the film is that he is not just a weak man shot through with flaws, he's an ass. The film makes use of interview footage in which a news team talks to Vicus about his job and then follows him into District 9 for the first day of attempting to forcibly remove the aliens from their shantytown shack homes. Not even the presence of heavily armed military men more than willing to gun down reticent aliens can make his halting, ineffectual conversations with confused, angry aliens any less pathetic and sad. But regardless of the silliness of the situation, the MNU folks slowly work their way from shack to shack, going through the motions of enforcing some obscure legality to move the undesirable aliens further away from the city center. At this point, we see Vicus and his team discovering hidden caches of weapons smuggled in by Nigerian criminals and learn that what MNU and the government is most interested in, really, is in cracking the technology of the aliens' weapons. Years ago, it was discovered that there is some kind of genetic recognition system in those weapons that allows only the prawns to actually use them. All of this story, background, and detail is gotten across with amazing speed and simplicity by adopting the style of reality television and mixing in the idea best used in the sitcom The Office. Talking head interviews are interspersed with footage from security cameras and news feeds, giving us a multi-layered look at this sci-fi reality that quickly becomes incredibly easy to accept. Indeed, until the complications of the plot slide into motion after Vicus has an accident with an alien liquid in District 9, everything we see could be just found footage 
cobbled together after the fact to tell this story. But the same handheld voyeuristic style is maintained for the body of the film as well, allowing the filmmakers to continue to blend in multiple points of view to deepen the characters and their motivations. It's a brilliant choice that would have been tossed out if this were a standard Hollywood-made film, but it works wonderfully. It allows for the constant introduction of new information while keeping the story in motion and makes the tense moments and scary sequences that much more immediate and nerve-jangling. By the time Vicus realizes his terrible predicament, he is on the run from people he's used to working with, and you can feel his fear and panic in every frame of the movie. Amazingly, this incredible film can be seen and enjoyed simply as a straightforward summer movie, while at the same time, clearly, there to see, if you wish, the filmmakers have crafted a very smart story that presents a view of our world that shines light on our worst tendencies as people. The film focuses on segregation, fear of immigrants, and the hostility that that fear can generate, paranoia, government secrecy, and the sheer evil of valuing money more than people, even if those people just might be aliens. That they even attempted to do this mad thing is laudable, and the fact that they have succeeded is a testament to their skill and talent. District 9 is one of the most impressive movies of the summer, and indeed the entire year so far. I urge everyone to see it, with only one caveat. It is a violent story with some harsh moments and some very adult language. After my first viewing, I felt it was safe for a 12-year-old as long as I was there with him, but it might not be advisable to take kids younger than that age. Other than that, I urge you to see it. It is a fantastic film, one of the best of the summer, and will go down as a landmark science fiction film. It is simply amazing. There you go, Rod. Thank you so much. Now, I just want to mention again the cover art for Charlie Strasser's work, which I just think is fantastic. It is by Evan Forsh. Now, this is the blurb for... Uh, <laughs> this is what I got off Evan when like, I says, Have you got a little bit of a bio, Evan? He says, On... 9-11, a plane crashed into my office building. I took this as Al-Qaeda's way of suggesting I shouldn't work in an office. You know what I mean? Wow. Since then, I've been cartooning and illustrating and writing funny stuff. He sold cartoons too, The New Yorker, Reader's Digest, Funny Times and Magazines. His greatest work came on September the 1st with, he says, a lot of help from his beautiful wife. There you go. Guess what that was? Evan, congratulations, sir. So please have a look at the artwork for the Charlie Stross story down on the farm. Next up is Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Jim. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this September 2009 installment of Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening's diversion, Jim Campanella. I'm going to start off with a little story that sort of falls onto the cusp of science insofar as it's about how scientists are viewed by the world. I have forever been horrified by how scientists are presented in movies and TV shows. You usually see a scientist who is either A, insane, B, a social outcast, or C, in need of massive infusions of money to continue his or her sadly ignored but potentially earth-shaking research. Or all three. Uh, scientists are never presented as the average, everyday person that you see on the street. 
Yes, we are a sad bunch of social losers sometimes, although geologists usually throw one hell of a party, but we are really very normal. We are neither plotting the destruction of the human race, nor are we building death rays in our basements. We live quietly prosaic lives where our research is mostly ignored by much of the world, except other specialists who might appreciate its intricacies. I have a young nephew who has only seen scientists and televisions and movies, and so whenever he sees me, he expects me to be toting an anti-gravity device around with me, or at least a tube of Ebola. He was very disappointed to see an actual science lab, which did not have the dim X-file lighting or the bubbling tubes of unknown substances or uh, electric arcs. Where am I going with this seemingly pointless line of blather? Well, I was actually pleased to see the scientists are treated by one group just like anyone else out there. And what is that group? Scam artists. Bear with me as I read you an edited special piece of spam email that I received a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Much too long to read the whole thing. Let me start off by saying that the email purports to be from Elsevier Publishing. And that's the largest publishing house of science journals in the world. Here it goes. Dear Professor, Elsevier journals are headed by editors and an editorial board of members. The editors and editorial board is appointed by the publication committee of Elsevier journals. Editors serve a three-year term, and editorial board members also serve a three-year term. Board members are chosen based on the journal's need for representation from a particular subject area in conjunction with the individual's commitment to maintaining high journal standards as illustrated in objective and prompt reviews. We are asking that you apply for a position on the editorial review board for molecular biology. We have read and published many of your scientific works, and we feel that you would be an ideal candidate to be part of the Elsevier editorial team. The Elsevier Journal's editorial office policy requires each manuscript to be reviewed by individuals who are highly competent and recognized in the particular field of the submitted manuscript. The editorial office feels that you are highly qualified. In order to be assigned as part of the editorial board, we ask you to officially submit your qualifications along with a $100 registration fee. Your credentials will be screened by our present board. Individuals who are accepted as reviewers and editors will be paid $30 per page of edited and reviewed materials. We would appreciate if you contact us as soon as possible because we are updating our data sheets for reviewers and editors, which we want to upload to our website as soon as possible. Thank you for your cooperation. Please reply to board.elsevier at gmail.com. Best regards, Joachim Kuz, Chief Editor. Professor. Wow. I just finished a 50-page monster for an Elsevier journal, and I didn't get a dime for that. If I could get on that editorial board, I could get $1,500? For that kind of work? Wahoo, sign me up. Does that go for editorial revisions, too? I could get that big paper into an endless series of revisions at $1,500 per round. Uh, There's a misplaced comma on page 14. I'm going to need to see a revision before I can recommend publication. Ka-ching. And if I'm running a bit short on cash, well, then a few reviews of the form, quote, interesting paper, but I'd like to see the manuscript be, uh, uh, well, maybe 15 pages longer? That would just about help make the mortgage payments. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, 
it is all a phishing scam perpetrated specifically against scientists. I was able to tell this based on several points. First, the email address is bogus. Elsevier does not use Gmail for its official email addresses. I mean, that's just silly. I've written them. I know this for a fact. Second, there is no Jochem Kuz professor at any university in the world that I could find, Dutch or otherwise. Yes, it is a Dutch name. Nor is he listed as an editor of any type on the Elsevier website. Uh, Finally, there is no way that any scientific publishing company would pay $30 per page for just reviewing. It doesn't happen. I actually have colleagues and advisors who are actual real chief editors of various journals. They don't get any money for the honor of being editor-in-chief. Do you really think they're going to pay anyone for just reviewing? Remember that scientific publishing is only a money-making operation for the publishers, not on the scientist side of things. We do it for the love of science and to have our names stuck in those journals for the next several centuries, not for the money. You may think of me as a bit nuts, but I think it oddly gratifying that somebody out there thinks that a group that is overwhelmingly filled with PhDs is a target for this sort of scam. Somebody out there in the silicon jungle of the internet actually thinks the scientists are normal and venal enough to act like the rest of the world. Makes you kind of proud. Chokes you up a bit, doesn't it? Ah, well. I don't want to make this show about my email, but I got something else in the mail about a week ago. I do get mail from listeners, though not very often, probably because people simply have trouble getting in touch with me. Uh, Tony was kind enough to forward this particular letter to me. Uh, Before I go on, it might be a good idea to actually give an email address that you can get in touch with me. So that if you have questions and are curious and maybe want them answered on the air, I'd be I'd be happy to do that. Uh, you can get in touch with me at Campanella at uvulaaudio.com. That's C-A-M-P-A-N-E-L-L-A at U-V-U-L-A audio, A-U-D-I-O dot com. Uvula Audio is all one word together, no dots in between it. Okay. So Tony was kind enough to forward this particular letter to me, and I thought it asked some interesting questions, so I decided I'd share it with the rest of the listeners. I will also share my answer. I figure that since I went through all the trouble to research an answer, I should probably get some mileage out of it. Here we go. Hi, Tony. It's J.J. Campanella's segment in Oral Delights, number 96, which I much enjoyed, particularly the part about the light-sensitive bacteria, that brings me to send you a message. Several questions occurred to me during his recounting of the restricted diet study on rhesus monkeys. I hope you don't mind passing them along to him. Years and years ago, when I first started seeing press about restricted diet postponing aging, I saw some articles about rats or mice where they reported that rats or mice in the restricted diet group had to be kept on antibiotics because of their tendency to catch infections because the restricted diet compromised their immune system. I haven't ever noticed another article since then mentioning antibiotics. So here's my first question for JJ. How many of the restricted diet studies have had to medicate their study group to mitigate infections? The other remark he made that went by in a flash was that there was some indication that immunosuppressive drugs might also postpone aging. This ties into my first question in that is it possible that it's immunosuppression that's key here? In the immunosuppressive studies, did they have to do something to control infection in the study group? While we're at it, a restricted diet does suppress the immune system, doesn't it? 
I'm sure I've read that bike racers, who are always watching their weight as well as riding hard, have suppressed immune systems and have to be careful about colds. Is that a myth or what? Thanks again for a great show, and here's hoping JJ can help me out of my puzzle state. Marion Goldine. I hope Marion doesn't mind my using her name. Since she hasn't emailed me back and I did tell her I was going to do this publicly, uh, I assume she won't have a problem with it. Here's my answer. Hello, Marion. I checked the protocol of the article that I mentioned in August's podcast and a couple of earlier ones, and I have to tell you that nobody recently seems to be giving rats high doses of antibiotics. That evidence alone suggests that the low-caloric diet does not weaken the immune system to the point thought at one time. Offhand, that kind of makes sense. Remember, they are simply giving rats just enough nutrients to stay healthy, and that's the key. The researchers are giving them just enough to not get ill from some nutritional imbalance, so there seems little reason why there should be a pathological response. Mind you, given all that, it doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of your question. Modern laboratory facilities and qualities of animal care are pretty close to sterile. They even have vets on constant call. If those mice were immunocompromised, it would not be clear unless they were tested for it. Lab rats and mice are genetically so inbred that they're not always the best examples of genetic health anyway. They are severely inbred so as to be genetically consistent from rat to rat and mouse to mouse as possible. Many strains are actually bred purposely to have compromised immune systems. That does not necessarily cause a problem under lab environments where the animals are kept in such clean states that they're unlikely to ever get ill. It's possible that some of the early experiments that you were referring to actually used rats that were already immunocompromised and that that state had little to do with the low caloric treatment regime. Unfortunately, without national reference, I can't go back and easily find the paper that you were talking about. Now, about the immunosuppressant drug seeming to have an effect on longevity, I see that as coincidence. I mean, certainly there have been hypotheses from several researchers who have suggested that many of our problems with aging stem from immune systems that become, well, hostile with time. But it seems counterintuitive to believe that shutting down the immune system will actually increase lifespan. I think most gerontologists agree that to age well, you need an intact and healthy immune system, something that older people usually do not have simply because they're aging. I don't agree that aging is brought about by some sort of autoimmune disorder that we all undergo, and there doesn't seem to be really a lot of evidence for that. In fact, a recent article by Dr. Simon N. Mendani of the USDA Nutritional Immunology Laboratory and Dr. Jean Mayer of Tufts suggests uh, just the opposite of what you've been led to believe by that uh, old unnamed study. And the paper came out in the Journal of Gerontology in July of 2009, and it is entitled Calorie Restriction Enhances T-Cell-Mediated Immune Response in Adult Overweight Men and Women. And the gist of the article is this. They examine the effects of calorie restriction on T-cell function in 46 overweight human participants aged 20 to 42 years. After six months, in addition to the obvious weight loss that occurred, there was a clear increase in the activity of the T-cells based on a whole series of abstruse tests. Anyway, the conclusion was the caloric restriction was actually good for the immune system. Less recent research articles over the last several years indicate that protein and calorie restrictions without malnutrition actually improve immunity by protecting against hepatitis B virus and malarial infections, as well as delaying or preventing development of cancer and cancer metastases. 
in addition, of course, to the usual life extension. In short, it seems unlikely that caloric restrictions have a negative effect on the immune system. Whether this conclusion will change in the future isn't very clear right now, but at the moment, it's probably not something to worry about. Uh, Good luck in the future if you decide to go the hard route of calorie restriction to extend your life. Uh, Talk to a doctor first. It's not something that most people can just start doing on their own. Cheers, me. The last two stories of the night are about ants. Now, you may not think that ants are very interesting, but with the recent rise in the popularity of zombie movies, I think you'll find both of these stories fascinating. I have mentioned before in previous podcasts that ants communicate in a variety of manners, but probably the most common is by scent. There are scents for just about anything you can think of, from sex to smells that indicate rank. Recently, a new scent signal was added to that panoply, a scent to indicate that you are dead. If you are a dead ant with the correct scent, you are picked up by the worker ants and tossed onto the trash pile with the rest of the refuse. Dr. Dong Huan Cho of the University of California published work in the Proceedings of the National Academy a couple of months ago that discusses this scent signal in Argentine ants. You do not want to be giving off that death signal while you are still alive, or you will be hauled off to the trash heap. What prevents awkward mistakes about who's really dead are two additional compounds also found on the covering of living ants. Cho says, quote, These compounds temporarily inhibit responses to the death cues by signaling, Wait, I'm not dead yet. Unquote. So not only are there dead signals, there are I'm alive signals. Cho dropped fresh and not-quite-so-fresh ant corpses into a lab colony and found that the ants that had been dead for only about an hour triggered about the same strong urge to remove them as ants who had been dead for 24 hours. And Cho said that such a speedy response seemed awfully quick for the decomposition chemistry to actually be triggering disposal. So he and his colleagues experimented with the notion that instead there was some still-alive cue that actually fades really fast. To test different chemical signals, they took advantage of the ant's natural tendency to retrieve young ants at the pupal stage that somehow end up outside the nest by wandering away. Pupae don't have the same surface chemistry as adults do, so the researchers doused them with a whole brew of various signals. The team also treated the pupae with two compounds found on living ants and freshly dead ants, but not found on dead ants an hour or more after they were dead. And those two compounds, dolichaldiol, and iridomyrmesin naturally dissipate quickly. When doused with these compounds, the pupa were ignored when they wandered away. They were neither disposed of nor promptly brought back to the nest, suggesting other adults treated them as if they were indeed living adult workers. What's the upshot of this? If you want to be ignored by ants, douse yourself with these compounds. I'll be curious what would happen to an ant who was a mutant and didn't make the compounds, would they actually be treated as the living dead, literally ignored by everyone else in the colony? Something very strange to think about. The other ant story is kind of related to the old Robert Heinlein novel, The Puppet Masters, and also to the original Star Trek's Operation Annihilate episode, which I mentioned in last month's podcast. If you remember those two stories, they have one thing in common. Alien invaders who could control minds. Well, There is such a thing that exists on Earth. It does have a bit of an ick factor, so try not to be too squeamish as you listen to this. 
Doctors Shelley Adamo of Dalhousie University in Halifax and David Hughes of Harvard in the September issue of the Journal of the American Naturalist report on a fungus that attacks living ants and apparently manipulates their behavior for its own benefit. When the fungus strikes, an infected ant is forced to climb a leaf that is not too far off the ground. He bites into the leaf and then dies there with his jaws locked into place. Experiments show that these low-hanging leaves give the fungus prime conditions for growing a spore-bearing spike out of the ant's neck. Yes, the ant is forced to climb to a place where the fungus can just kill it and use it to help its reproduction. The leaf biting has been known since the 1920s, but it wasn't until this paper that researchers were able to show that the poor ant is being controlled by the parasite. The researchers determined that the ants were specifically being moved up the side of the tree to an optimal height for fungal growth by the fungus itself. Neither the high canopy nor the base of the tree worked for fungal reproduction. It would only reproduce on leaves just above the tree base. A fibrous fungal spike grew out of the necks of ants there and bore a segmented red-orange lump that Hughes compares to a lopsided pineapple. Blah. Okay, that's even kind of grossing me out, so I'll drop this. I think you guys get the point. The researchers have no idea how the fungus is directing the ant to do anything. That seems to be a bit of a mystery. Other researchers are already arguing that the study has flaws in it because of a lack of good controls, but I think it supports its point pretty well, even if it does not put a nail in the coffin of the ants and the fungus. Well, I've talked and talked and talked, so that's all for me for now. As always, take care, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. I thank you, Mr. Campanella. And I actually gave Jim a story inspired Tanith Lee to narrate. And I'm stunned by it, to be quite honest. I just thought that was a great story. So look out for that as well. And I'm trying to get Skeet on the case and design a cover for that one as well. Next up is a little bit of flash fiction. This comes from Fabio Fernandez, The Arrival of the Cogsmith, Oil on Canvas by Turner, 1815. We've played a story by Fabio before. I'll give you a kind of little heads up for Fabio. He's a writer living in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Also a journalist and translator. He is responsible for the Brazilian translations of several prominent SF novels, including... Get this, New Romancer, Snow Crash, and The Clockwork Orange. I've mentioned this before, but I just kind of think if anyone's new that hasn't listened to or who knows about Fabio, you know, this guy's a kind of, you know, a landmark in science fiction or bringing it to Brazil, you know. Please go out and check Fabio's work there. You can find him at verbeat.org, blogspot, PWT. I don't know what that kind of um, post-weird thought, sorry, Fabio there. I'll put a link on to Fabio's website in verbbeat.org blogs PWT. So it is narrated by Julie Davis. Julie over there at Forgotten Classics. Julie's been so kind to me. She put a lovely big mention about the book on her blogs. So Julie, thank you so much. Again, if you want to have a look at Julie's work, just come to the front of Starship Sofa and I will take you there. So, the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Arrival of the Cogsmiths Oil on Canvas by Turner, 1815 
by Fabio Fernandez. There they are, in the lower right-hand corner of the painting. Ragged clothes, soot-smudged faces, tragedy written on their faces. It's a reasonably sized painting, 690.8 by 1,190.4 centimeters, so you can see the details well enough. Faces weren't William Turner's forte, but he conveyed well their nuances. Those were the faces of eight young men and women lost in the battlefields of Europe without their master, faces who didn't know their bodies would survive. It was no easy feat. Almost four years crossing Europe in the worst times ever. They lost one of their friends to war, another to disease, and another that they believed lost forever was returned to them. None of these things are shown in the painting, but the chiaroscuro, the play of light and shadow and the color in the faces of the cogsmiths, their tired, fearful expressions when they, finally in the safety of Dover, run to the friendly embrace of an old, benign James Watt, whose son commissioned this painting many years after the fact. The cogsmiths have arrived on Dover by 1809, after years of tribulations crossing Europe in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. It was not of their will to do so, neither of their master. A few years before, Victor Frankenstein had reunited in his castle the very best of the English natural philosophers in order to see his accomplishment. The steam man, a creature in almost everything like a man, but not quite. It was what the old Greeks called an automaton, among these philosophers were Matthew Bolton and James Watt, who had just founded a company to build their own steam engines. They saw promise in Frankenstein's steam man, or Diener, German for servitor, as he called the creature. Bolton and Watt had the expertise, material, and factories. Frankenstein had a fortune. They proposed a partnership to him. Having corresponded for some years with Watt, Frankenstein had already given that thought some consideration, and he promptly accepted. In 1801, a few months after the reunion of brilliant minds at Lake Geneva, Victor Frankenstein accepted the suggestion of Bolton and Watt, and hired a group of young men and women to work for him as apprentices. They soon gathered into a fellowship of sorts, and gave it the name of the Cogsmiths. After a year of hardship teaching his apprentices the tools of the trade, Frankenstein traveled to Lyon, where he visited a certain Joseph-Marie Jacquard. This man, who was already starting to attract attention from outside, had devised an ingenious technique to improve the working of his looms, the use of perforated cards. Those cards configurated certain positions in the rows of threads, Frankenstein could see the practical applications in this technique in the working of cogs, rods, and cables in his automaton. He promptly went to see this man Jacquard. They worked together pretty well. In mere weeks, Frankenstein could teach Jacquard how to make better looms using metal parts, and Jacquard returned the favor, teaching Victor the principle behind the Valconsen cards. The Swiss inventor returned to his castle in a state of bliss. Unfortunately, Victor's wasn't the only attention Jacquard's loom attracted. The recently self-appointed French consul for life, Napoleon Bonaparte, 
had heard of the wonders of the Lyons loom and paid the city a visit. Upon seeing the invention of Jacquard, Napoleon gave him not only a prize but also a stipend for life. Being a profoundly ethical man, Jacquard felt obliged to point out he shouldn't be the only one to receive that homage, for if not for his friend Victor Frankenstein, also a marvelous inventor, his loom would not have achieved its success. Then Bonaparte became very interested in Frankenstein's invention. Alas, he could not go to Lake Geneva himself. But as that region was officially part of France now and not of Switzerland, he sent a squadron to invite Monsieur Victor Frankenstein. For though he considered himself a Swiss citizen, his castle at Lake Geneva was in fact part of France then, to visit him in Paris. The soldiers, under Lieutenant Henri Bale, who later would write an account of those days by the pseudonym of Stendhal, had orders to take him by force if necessary, as well as his automaton. They never did. While Victor Frankenstein stayed in his castle to try to save part of the equipment and of the documents, or destroy all of his research if necessary, the band of eight young men and women. Fled Castle Frankenstein not to return. They were instructed by their master to go straight to England and look for James Watt, who would welcome them into his foundry. The timing was the worst possible. In April 1805, the United Kingdom and Russia signed a treaty with the aim of removing the French from Holland and Switzerland. Lake Geneva was in the middle of the first conflagrations to that effect. Later. An unauthorized account of their travels would attribute part of their escapade through France to the help of a certain Sir Percy Blakeney and his League of the Scarlet Pimpernel, though this could never be proved. Neither could it be disproved, as it were. They had to resort to everything they had learned in years of the Frankenstein laboratories in Geneva if they wanted to survive. Their influence would not be felt until much later. But then it would be late for anyone, Napoleon or any other monarch of government, or even their patron and former master, Victor Frankenstein, to stop the march of progress. For progress it was, while their master was to be acclaimed worldwide as the father of the mechanical brains. The cogsmiths would be considered the fathers and mothers of what came to be called then by popular press and workers as the infernal devices, nothing more than our modern smart machines, contraptions that, if not possessing intellects as the descendants of Frankenstein's automaton, the long gone machine kind of sad memory, were at least capable of executing several tasks without the aid of their human owners and masters. Even with all their expertise, however, the cogsmiths could not fix their master's greatest creation—the metal steam-powered automaton, which the former apprentices, now masters themselves, forged in the fires of many conflagrations, had to dismantle in order to carry with them incognito in their travels, was so battered that they thought it would never work again. The automaton. Hidden in several sacks of cloth, does not appear in the painting. We know, however, that he did recover, although the details of how this came to be 
are forever lost to us. This painting can be seen currently in the Maschinenhistorisches Museum, Gemalte Galerie, Vienna. There you go. Fabio, thank you so much. Next up is Main Fiction, and it comes from Charlie Strauss. This one first appeared on the Tor.com website. It was a story over there. I seen it. I thought, this is just fantastic. I got in touch with Pablo over there, Defendini, and he was more than happy to let Starship Sova play it. So, like I said, if I think everyone knows Charlie Strauss there, but again, I'll put a link on, you know, Charlie Strauss's blog is just kind of phenomenal in, in the way of kind of just churning out information that is addictive to kind of reading and listening to, or listening to, reading. So please pop over to Charlie Strauss's site. It is narrated by Chris Booth. Chris is one of more than kind of 3,000 volunteers over at LibriVox, where he's been narrating public domain literature and making the recordings available for free in audio format. Since, he's been doing this since 2007, he particularly enjoys recording the works of English writers, but can occasionally be distracted by a moving poem or a juicy science fiction story. There you go. Chris, thank you so much. This is a great narration. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. Down on the Farm by Charles Stross Ah, the joy of summer. Here in the southeast of England it's the season of mosquitoes, sunburn and water shortages. I'm a city boy, so you can add stifling pollution to the list as a million outwardly mobile families start their Chelsea tractors and race to their holiday camps. And that's before we consider the hellish environs of the tube. Far more literally hellish than anyone realises. Unless they've looked at a Transport for London journey planner and recognised the recondite geometry underlying the superimposed sigils of the underground map. But I digress. One morning, my deputy head of department wanders into my office. It's a cramped office, and I'm busy practising my frisbee throw with a stack of beer mats and a dartboard decorated with various cabinet ministers. Bob? Andy pauses to pluck a moist cardboard square out of the air as I sit up, guiltily. A job's just come up that you might like to look at. I think it's right up your street. The first law of bureaucracy is, show no curiosity outside your cubicle. It's like the first rule of every army that's ever bashed a square. Never volunteer. If you ask questions, or volunteer, it will be taken as a sign of inactivity, and the devil, in the person of your line manager, or your sergeant, will find a task for your idle hands. What's more, you'd better believe it'll be less appealing than whatever you were doing before. Creatively idling, for instance because inactivity is a crime against organisation and must be punished. It goes double here in the laundry, that branch of the British secret state tasked with defending the realm from the scum of the multiverse, using the tools of applied computational demonology. Volunteer for the wrong job, and you can end up with soul-sucking horrors from beyond space-time using your brain for a midnight snack. But I don't think I could get away with feigning overwork right now. And besides, he's packaged it up as a mystery. Andy knows how to bait my hook, damn it. What kind of job? 
There's something odd going on down at the funny farm. He gives a weird little chuckle. The trouble is going to be telling whether it's just the usual or a more serious deviation. Normally I'd ask Boris to check it out, but he's not available this month. It has to be an SSO2 or higher, and I can't go out there myself. So, how about it? Call me impetuous, not to mention a little bored, but I'm not stupid. And while I'm far enough down the management ladder that I have to squint to see daylight, I'm an SSO3, which means I can sign off on petty cash authorizations up to the price of a pencil, and get to sit in on interminable meetings when I'm not tackling supernatural incursions or grappling with the eerie, eldritch horrors in human resources. I even get to represent my department on international liaison junkets, when I don't dodge fast enough. Not so quick. Why can't you go? Have you got a meeting scheduled or something? Most likely it's a five-course lunch with his opposite number from the dustbin liaison committee, knowing Andy. But if so, and if I take the job, that's all for the good. He'll end up owing me. Andy pulls a face. It's not the usual. I would go but they might not let me out again. Huh? They? Who are they? The nurses. He looks me up and down as if he's never seen me before. Weird. What's gotten into him? They're sensitive to the stench of magic. It's okay for you. You've only been working here, what, six years? All you need to do is turn your pockets inside out before you go and make sure you're not carrying any gizmos, electronic or otherwise. But I've been here coming up on fifteen years, and the longer you've been in the laundry, it gets under your skin. Visiting the funny farm isn't a job for an old hand, Bob. It has to be someone new and fresh, who isn't likely to attract their professional attention. Call me slow, but finally I figure out what this is about. Andy wants me to go, because he's afraid. See, I told you the rules, didn't I? Anyway, that's why, less than a week later, I am admitted to a lunatical asylum, for that is what the Gothic engraving on the stone Victorian workhouse lintel assures me it is. Luckily, mine is not an emergency admission, but you can never be too sure. The old saw that there are some things that mortal men were not meant to know cuts deep in my line of work. Laundry staff... The laundry is what we call the organisation, not a description of what it does, are sometimes exposed to mind-blasting horrors in the course of our business. I'm not just talking about the usual PowerPoint presentations and self-assessment sessions to which any bureaucracy is prone. They're more like the mythical worse things that happen at sea, especially in the vicinity of drowned alien cities occupied by tentacled terrors. When one of our number needs psychiatric care, they're not going to get it in a normal hospital, or via care in the community. We don't want agents babbling classified secrets in public, even in the relatively safe confines of a padded cell. Perforce, we take care of our own. I'm not going to tell you what town the funny farm is embedded in. Like many of our establishments, it's a building of a certain age, confiscated by the government during the Second World War, and not returned to its former owners. It's hard to find. It sits in the middle of a triangle of grubby shopping streets that have seen better days, and every building that backs onto it sports a high, windowless brick wall. All but one. 
If you enter a small grocery store, walk through the stockroom into the backyard, then unlatch a nondescript wooden gate and walk down a gloomy, soot-stained alley, you'll find a dank alleyway. You won't do this without authorization. It's protected by wards powerful enough to cause projectile vomiting in would-be burglars. But if you did, and if you followed the alley, you'd come to a heavy green wooden door surrounded by narrow windows with black-painted cast-iron bars. A dull, pitted plaque next to the doorbell proclaims it to be St Hilda of Grantham's home for disgruntled waifs and strays, except that most of them aren't so much disgruntled as demonically possessed when they arrive at these gates. It smells faintly of boiled cabbage and existential despair. I take a deep breath and yank the bell pull. Nothing happens, of course. I phoned ahead to make an appointment, but even so, someone's got to unlock a bunch of doors and then lock them again before they can get to the entrance and let me in. They take security seriously there, Andy told me. Can't risk some of the battier inmates getting loose, you know. Just how dangerous are they? I'd asked. Mostly they're harmless. To other people, he shuddered. But the secure ward... Don't try and go there on your own. Not that the sisters will let you, but I mean, don't even think about trying it. Some of them are... Well, we owe them a duty of care and a debt of honour. They fell in the line of duty and all that. But that's scant consolation for you if a senior operations officer who succumbed to paranoid schizophrenia decides that you're a blue Hades and gets hold of some red chalk and a hypodermic needle before your next visit, hmm? The thing is, magic is a branch of applied mathematics, and the inmates here are not only mad, they're computer science graduates. That's why they came to the attention of the laundry in the first place, and it's also why they ultimately ended up in the farm, where we can keep them away from sharp, pointy things and diagrams with the wrong sort of angles. But it's difficult to make sure they're safe. You can solve theorems with a blackboard if you have to, after all, or in your head, if you dare green crayon on the walls of a padded cell takes on a whole different level of menace in the funny farm. In fact, many of the inmates aren't allowed writing implements, and blank paper is carefully controlled, never mind electronic devices of any kind. I'm mulling over these grim thoughts when there's a loud clunk from the door, and a panel just large enough to admit one person opens inward. Mr. Howard, I'm Dr. Renfield, you're not carrying any electronic or electrical items or professional implements, fetishes or charms. I shake my head. Good. If you'd like to come this way, please. Renfield is a mild-looking woman, slightly mousy in a tweed skirt and white lab coat, with the perpetually harried expression of someone who has a full file of facts and hasn't worked out yet that her watch is losing an hour a day. I hurry along behind her, trying to guess her age. Thirty-five? Forty-five? I give up. How many inmates do you have, exactly? I ask. We come to a portcullis-like door, and she pauses, fumbling with an implausibly large keyring. Eighteen, at last count, she says. Come on, we don't want to annoy Matron. She doesn't like people obstructing the corridors. There are steel rails recessed into the floor, like a diminutive narrow-gauge railway. 
The corridor walls are painted institutional cream, and I notice after a moment that the light is coming through windows set high up in the walls. Odd-looking devices like armoured glass chandeliers hang from pipes, just out of reach. Gas lamps, Renfield says abruptly. I twitch. She's noticed my surreptitious inspection. We can't use electric ones, except for matron, of course. Come into my office. I'll fill you in. We go through another door. Oak, darkened with age, looking more like it belongs in a stately home than a lunatic asylum, except for the two prominent locks. And suddenly we're in Mahogany Row. Thick wool carpets, brass doorknobs, light switches, and overstuffed armchairs. OK, so the carpet is faded with age and transected by more of the parallel rails. But it's still officer country. Renfield's office opens off one side of this reception area, and at the other end I see closed doors and a staircase leading up to another floor. This is the administrative wing, she explains as she opens her door. Tea or coffee? Coffee, thanks, I say, sinking into a leather-encrusted armchair that probably dates to the last but one century. Renfield nods and pulls a discreet cord by the doorframe, then drags her office chair out from behind her desk. I can't help noticing that not only does she not have a computer, but her desk is dominated by a huge and ancient manual typewriter, an imperial aristocrat 66 with the wide carriage upgrade and adjustable tabulator, I guess, although I'm not really an expert on office appliances that are twice as old as I am, and one wall is covered in wooden filing cabinets. There might be as much as 30 megabytes of data stored in them. You do everything on paper, I understand. That's right. She nods, serious-faced. Too many of our clients aren't safe around modern electronics. We even have to be careful what games we let them play. Lego and Meccano are completely banned, obviously, and there was a nasty incident involving a game of Cluedo, back before my time. Any board game that has a non-deterministic set of rules can be dangerous in the wrong set of hands. The door opens. Tea for two, says Renfield. I look round, expecting an orderly, and freeze. Mr. Howard, this is Nurse Gearbox, she adds. Nurse Gearbox, this is Mr. Howard. He is not a new admission, she says hastily, as the thing in the doorway swivels its head towards me with a menacing hiss of hydraulics. Mr. Howard, welcome to St. Hilda's. The thing in the very old-fashioned nurse's uniform, old enough that its origins as a 19th-century nun's habit are clear, regards me with unblinking panopticon lenses. Where its nose should be, something like a witch-finder's wand points towards me, stellate and articulated. Its face is a brass death mask, mouth a metal grill that seems to grimace at me in pointed distaste. Nurse Gearbox is one of our eight sisters, explains Dr. Renfield. They're not fully autonomous. I can see a rope-thick bundle of cables trailing from under the hem of the sister's floor-length skirt, which presumably conceals something other than legs, but controlled by Matron, who lives in the two sub-basement levels under the administration block. Matron started life as an IBM 1602 mainframe back in the day, with a summoning pentacle and a trapped class 4 lesser nameless manifestation constrained to provide the higher cognitive functions. I twitch. It's a grid, please, not a pentacle. Um, 
Matron is electrically powered? Yes, Mr. Howard. We allow electrical equipment in Matron's basement as well as here in the staff suite. Only the areas accessible to the patients have to be kept power-free. The sisters are fully equipped to control unseemly outbursts, pacify the overstimulated, and conduct basic patient care tasks. They also have Volman flesh thaumaturgic thixometers for detecting when patients are in danger of doing themselves a mischief, so I would caution you to keep any occult activities to a minimum in their presence. Despite their hydraulic delay line controls, their reflexes are very fast. I nod appreciatively. When was the system built? The set of Dr. Renfield's jaw tells me that she's bored with the subject, or doesn't want to go there for some reason. That will be all, sister. The door closes, as if on oiled hinges. She waits for a moment, head cocked as if listening for something. Then she relaxes. The change is remarkable, from stressed-out psychiatrist to tired housewife in zero seconds flat. She smiles tiredly. Sorry about that. There are some things you really shouldn't talk about in front of the sisters. Among other things, Matron is very touchy about how long she's been here, and everything they hear, she hears. Oh, right. I feel like kicking myself. Did Mr. Newstrom brief you about this installation before he pitched you in at the deep end? Just when I thought I had a handle on her. Not in depth. Let's not mention the six-sheet letter of complaint alleging staff brutality scribbled in blue crayon on both sides of the toilet paper. Let's not go into the fact that nobody has a clue how it was smuggled out, much less how it appeared on the table one morning in the executive boardroom, which is always locked overnight. I gather it's pretty normal to fob inspections off on a junior manager. Let's not mention just how junior. Is that a problem? Hmm. Renfield sniffs. You could say so. It's a matter of necessity, really. Too much exposure to esoterica in the course of duty leaves the most experienced operatives carrying traces of, hmm, disruptive influences. She considers her next words carefully. You know what our purpose is, don't you? Our job is to isolate and care for members of staff who are a danger to themselves and others. That's why such a small facility, we have only 30 beds, has two doctors on staff. It takes two to sign the committal papers. Matron and the sisters are immune to cross-infection and possession, but have no legal standing, so Dr. Hexenhammer and I are needed. Right, I nod, trying to conceal my unease. So the sisters have a tendency to react badly to senior field agents? Occasionally, her cheek twitches, although they haven't made a mistake and tried to forcibly detain anyone who wasn't at risk for nearly thirty years now. The door opens again without warning. This time, Sister is pushing a trolley, complete with teapot, jug, and two cups and saucers. The trolley wheels fit perfectly on the narrow-gauge track, and the way Nurse Gearbox shunts it along makes me think, wheels. Thank you, Sister. That will be all, Renfield says, taking the trolley. So, what clients do you have at present? I ask. We have eighteen, she says, without missing a beat. Milk or sugar? Milk, no sugar. Nobody at head office seems to be able to tell me much about them. I don't see why not. We file regular updates with human resources, she says, pouring the tea. I consider my next words carefully. No need to mention the confusing incident with the shredder, the medical files, and the photocopies of Peter Fred's buttocks at last year's Christmas party. 
Never mind the complaint, which isn't worth the toilet paper it was scribbled on, except insofar as it proves that the funny farm's cordon sanitaire is leaking. One of the great things about ISO 9000 compliant organisations is that not only is there a form for everything, but anything that isn't submitted on the correct form can be ignored. It's the paper thing, apparently. Manual typewriters don't work well with the office document management system, and someone tried to feed them to a scanner a couple of years ago. Then they sent the originals for recycling without proofreading the scanner output. Anyway, it turns out that we don't have a completely accurate idea of who's on long-term remand here, and HR want their superannuation files bringing up to date, so it's a matter of some urgency. Renfield sighs. So someone had an accident with a shredder again, and no photocopies? She looks at me sharply for a moment. Well, I suppose that's just typical. We're just another of those low-priority outposts nobody gives a damn about. I suppose I should be grateful they sent someone to look into it. She takes a sip of tea. We've got fourteen short-stay patients right now, Mr. Howard. Of those, I think the prognosis is good in all cases, except perhaps Merriweather. If you give me your desk number, I'll post you a full list of names and payroll references tomorrow. The four long-term patients are another matter. They live in the secure wing, by the way. All of them have a nurse of their own, just in case. Three of them have been here so long they don't have current payroll numbers. The system was first computerised in 1972, and they'd all been permanently decertified for duty before that point. And one of them, between you and me, I'm not even sure what his name is. I nod, trying to look encouraging. The complaint I'm supposed to investigate apparently came from one of the long-term patients. The question is, which one? Nobody's sure. The doorman on the night shift when the document showed up isn't terribly communicative. He's been dead for some years himself, and the CCTV system didn't spot anything. Which is in itself suggestive. The laundry's HQ CCTV surveillance is rather special extremely hard to deceive and guaranteed not to be hooked up to the Scorpion Stair network any more, which would be the most obvious route to suborning it. Perhaps you could introduce me to the inmates. The transients first, then the long-term ones? She looks a little shocked. But they're the long-term residents. I assure you, they each need a full-time sister's attention just to keep them under control. Of course, I shrug, trying to look embarrassed. It's not hard. But HR have got a bee in their bonnet about some European directive on workplace health and safety and long-term disability resource provisioning that requires them to appoint a patient advocate to mediate with the ombudsman in disputes over health and safety conditions. I shrug again. It's bullshit. You know it and I know it. But we've got to comply or questions will be asked. This is the civil service, after all. And they're still technically laundry employees, even if they've been remanded into long-term care, so someone has to do the job. My manager's plate spin the bottle, and I got the job, so I've got to ask you, if you don't mind? If you insist, I'm sure something can be arranged, Renfield concedes, but Matron won't be happy about you visiting the secure wing. It's very irregular. She likes to keep a firm grip on it. It'll take a while to sort a visit out, and if any of them get wind... Well then, we'd just better make it a surprise, and the sooner we get it over with, the sooner I'll be out of your hair. I grin like a loon. They told me about the observation gallery. Would you mind showing me around? We do the short-stay ward first. 
the ward is arranged around a corridor, with bathrooms and a nursing station at either end, and individual rooms for the patients. There's a smoking room off to one side, with a yellow patina to the white gloss paint around the door frame. The smoking room is empty, but for a huddle of sad-looking leather armchairs and an imposing wallboard covered in health and safety notices, including the obligatory smoking is illegal warning. If it wasn't for the locks and the observation windows in the doors, it could be mistaken for the day room of a genteel, slightly decaying Victorian railway hotel, fallen on hard times. The patients are another matter. This is Henry Merriweather, says Dr. Renfield, opening the door to bed three. Henry? Hello? I want you to meet Mr. Howard. He's here to conduct a routine inspection. Hello? Henry? Bed three is actually a cramped studio flat, featuring a small living room with sofa and table and separate bedroom and toilet areas opening off it opposite the door. A wind-up gramophone with a flaring bell-shaped horn sits atop a hulking wooden sideboard, stained almost black. There's a newspaper, neatly folded, and a bowl of fruit. The frosted window glass is threaded with wire, but otherwise there's little to dispel the illusion of hospitality, except for the occupant. Henry squats, cross-legged, on top of the polished wooden table. His head is tilted in my direction, but he's not focusing on me. He's dressed in a set of pastel-striped pyjamas, the like of which I haven't seen this century. His attention is focused on the sister waiting in the corridor behind us. His face is a rictus of abject terror, as if the automaton in the starched pinafore is waiting to pull his fingers to pieces, joint by joint, as soon as we leave. Hello? I say tentatively, and wave a hand in front of him. Henry jackknifes to his feet and tumbles off the table backwards, making a weird gobbling noise that I mistake at first for laughter. He backs into the corner of the room, crouching, and points past me. Auditor! Auditor! Henry! Renfield steps sideways around me. She sounds concerned. Is this a bad time? Is there anything I can do to help? You! You! His wobbly index finger points past me, twitching randomly. Inspection! Inspection! Renfield obviously used the wrong word and set him off. The poor bastard's terrified, half out of his tree with fear. My stomach just about climbs out through my ribs in sympathy. The auditors are one of my personal nightmares, and Henry, that's Senior Scientific Officer 3rd, Henry Merriweather, Operations Research and Development Group, Maybe half catatonic and a danger to himself, but he's got every right to be afraid of them. It's all right. I'm not... There's a squeaking, grinding noise behind me. Mr. Merriweather, go to your room. Time for bed. Immediately. Behind me, Nurse Flywheel is blocking the door like a starched and pintuck Dalek. She brandishes a cast-iron sink plunger menacingly. Immediately! Override, barks Renfield. Sister, back away! To me, quietly. The sisters respond badly when inmates get upset. Follow my lead. To the sister, who is casting about with her stalk-like thormic fixometer. I have control. Merriweather stands in the corner, shaking uncontrollably and panting as the robotic nurse points at him for a minute. We're at an impasse, it seems. Then, Doctor, matron says the patient must go to bed. 
You have control. The sister withdraws, rotates on her base, and glides backward along her rails to the nursing station. Renfield nudges the door shut with one foot. Mr. Howard, would you mind standing with your back to the door? And your head in front of that, ah, uh, spy hole? You're not, you're not, not, n-n-n-n. Merriweather gobbles for words as he stares at me. I spread my hands. Not an auditor, I say, smiling. Not a, n His mouth falls open and his eyes shut. A moment later, I see the moisture trails on his cheeks as he begins to weep with quiet desperation. He's having a bad day, Renfield mutters in my direction. Here, let's get you to bed, Henry. She approaches him slowly, but he makes no move to resist as she steers him into the small bedroom and pulls the covers back. I stand with my back to the door the whole time, covering the observation window. For some reason, the back of my neck is itching. I can't help thinking that Nurse Flywheel isn't exactly the chatty, talkative type who's likely to put her feet up and relax with a nice cup of tea. I got a feeling that somewhere in this building an unblinking, red-rimmed eye is watching me, and sooner or later I'm going to have to meet its owner. Andy was afraid. Well, I'm not stupid. I can take a hint. So right after he asked me to go down to St Hilda's and find out what the hell was going on, I plucked up my courage and went and knocked on Angleton's office door. Angleton is not to be trifled with. I don't know anyone else currently alive and in the organisation who could get away with misappropriating the name of the CIA's legendary chief of counter-espionage as a nom de guerre. I don't know anyone else in the organisation whose face is visible in circa 1942 photographs of the laundry's line-up, either, barely changed across all those years. Angleton scares the bejesus out of most people, myself included. Study the abyss for long enough, and the abyss will study you right back. Angleton's qualified to chair a university department of necromancy, if any such existed, and meetings with him can be quite harrowing. Luckily, the old ghoul seems to like me, or at least not to view me with the distaste and disdain he reserves for human resources or our political masters. In the wizened, desiccated corners of what passes for his pedagogical soul, he evidently longs for a student, and I'm the nearest thing he's got right now. Enter. Boss, got a minute? Sit, boy. I sat. Angleton bashed away at the keyboard of his device for a few more seconds, then pulled the carbon papers out from under the platen. For really secret secrets in this line of work, computers are flat-out verboten, and laid them face down on his desk, then carefully draped a stained tea towel over them. What is it? Andy wants me to go and conduct an unscheduled inspection of the funny farm. Whoa! Angleton stares at me, fully engaged. Did he say why? he asks finally. Well, how to put it, he seems to be afraid of something, and there's some kind of complaint from one of the inmates. Angleton props his elbows on the desk and makes a steeple of his bony fingers. A minute passes before a cold wind blows across the charnel house roof. Well, I have never seen Angleton nonplussed before, The effect is disturbing, like glancing down and realising that, 
Like Wiley Coyote, you've just run over the edge of a cliff and are standing on thin air. Boss? What exactly did Andy say? Angleton asks slowly. We received a complaint. I briefly outline what I know about the shit-stirring missive. Something about one of the long-stay inmates, and I was just wondering, do you know anything about them? Angleton peers at me over the rims of his bifocals. As a matter of fact, I do, he says slowly. I had the privilege of working with them. Hmm, let me see. He unfolds creakily to his feet, turns and strides over to the shelves of ancient East Light files that cover the back wall of his office. Where did I put it? Angleton going to the paper files is another whoa moment. He keeps most of his stuff in his Memex, the vast, hulking microfilm mechanism built into his desk. If it's still printed on paper, then it's really important. Boss? Yes, he says, without turning away from his search. We don't know how the message got out, I say. Isn't it supposed to be a secure institution? Yes, it is. Ah, that's more like it. Angleton pulls a box file from its niche and blows vigorously across its upper edge. Then he casually opens it. There's a pop and a sizzle of ozone as the ward lets go, harmlessly bypassing him. He is, after all, its legitimate owner. Hmm, in here somewhere. Isn't it supposed to be leak-proof by definition? I'm getting to that. Be patient, Bob. There's a waspish note in his voice, and I shut up hastily. A minute later, Angleton pulls a mimeographed booklet from the file and closes the lid. He returns to the desk and slides the booklet towards me. I think you'd better read this first, then go and do what Andy wants, he says slowly. Be a good boy and copy me on your detailed itinerary before you depart. I read the cover of the booklet, which is dog-eared and dusty. There's a picture of a swell guy in a suit and a gal in a fifties beehive hairdo sitting in front of a piece of industrial archaeology. The title reads, Power, Cooling and Substation Requirements for Your IBM S-1602-M200. I sneeze, puzzled. Boss? I suggest you read and memorise this booklet, Bob. It is not impossible that there will be an exam, and you really wouldn't want to fail it. My skin crawls. Boss? Pause. It's not true that the funny farm is entirely leak-proof, Bob. It's surrounded by an air gap, but it was designed to leak under certain very specific conditions. I find it troubling that these conditions do not appear to apply in the present circumstances. In addition to memorising this document, you might want to review the files on Gibbous Moon and Axiom Refuge before you go. Pause. And if you see Cantor, give my regards to the old coffin dodger. I'm particularly interested in hearing what he's been up to for the past thirty years. Renfield takes me back to the smoking room and shuts the door. He's having a bad day, I'm afraid. She pulls out a cardboard packet and extracts a cigarette. Smoke? Ah, uh, no thanks. 
The sash windows are nailed shut and their frames painted over. There's a louvered vent near the top of the windows, grossly unfit for purpose. I try not to breathe too deeply. What happened to him? She strikes a match and contemplates the flame for a moment. Let's see. He's forty-two, married, two kids. He talks about them. Wife's a schoolteacher. His deep cover is that he works in MI6 clerical. You're not supposed to talk about your work to your partner, but it's difficult enough that we've been given dispensation to tell little white lies, and if necessary, HR will back them up. He's not field qualified. Mostly he does theory, but he worked for Q Division and he was on secondment to the Abstract Attractor Working Group when he fell ill. In other words, he's a theoretical thaumaturgist. Magic being a branch of applied mathematics, when you carry out certain computational operations, it has echoes in the platonic realm of pure mathematics, echoes audible to beings whose true nature I cannot speak of, on account of doing so being a violation of the Official Secrets Act. Theoretical thaumaturgists are the guys who develop new efferent algorithms, or, colloquially, spells. It's an occupation with a high attrition rate. He's convinced the auditors are after him for thinking inappropriate thoughts on organisation time. There's an elaborate confabulation, and it looks a little like paranoid schizophrenia at first glance. But underneath... We sent him to our trust hospital for an MRI scan, and he's got the characteristic lesions. Lesions? She takes a deep drag from the cigarette. His prefrontal lobes look like Swiss cheese. It's one of the early signs of Kranzberg syndrome. If we can keep him isolated from work for a couple more months, then retire him to a nice quiet desk job, we might be able to stabilise him. K-syndrome's not like Alzheimer's. If you remove the insult, it frequently goes into remission. Mind you, he may also need a course of chemotherapy. At various times, my predecessors tried electroconvulsive treatment, prefrontal lobotomy, neuroleptics, daytime television, LSD. None of them work consistently or reliably. The best treatment still seems to be bed rest, followed by work therapy in a quiet, undemanding office environment. Blue cloud spirals towards the ceiling. But he'll never run a great summoning again. I'm beginning to regret not accepting her offer of a cigarette, and I don't even smoke. My mouth's dry. I sit down. Do we have any idea what causes K-syndrome? I've skimmed Gibbous Moon, but the medical jargon didn't mean much to me, and Axiom Refuge was even less helpful. It turned out to be a dense mathematical treatise introducing a notation for describing certain categories of topological defect in a twelve-dimensional space. Only the power supply for the mainframe, presumably the one Matron used, seemed remotely relevant to the job in hand. There are several theories. Renfield twitches ash onto the threadbare carpet as she paces the room. It tends to hit theoretical computational demonologists after about twenty years. Merriweather is unusually young. It also hits people who've worked in high thorn fields for too long. Initial symptoms include mild ataxia, you saw his hand shaking, and heightened affect. It can be mistaken for bipolar disorder or hyperactivity, there's also the disordered thinking and auditory hallucinations typical of some types of schizophrenia. She pauses to inhale. There are two schools of thought, if you leave out the Malleus Maleficarum stuff about souls contaminated by demonic effusions. 
One is that exposure to high thorn fields causes progressive brain lesions. Trouble is, it's rare enough that we haven't been able to quantify that, and... The other theory? I prod. My favourite. She nearly smiles. Computational demonology. You carry out calculations, you prove theorems. Somewhere else in the platonic realm of mathematics, listeners notice your activities and respond, yes? Well, there's some disagreement over this, but the current orthodoxy in neurophysiology is that the human brain is a computational organ. We can carry out computational tasks, yes? We're not very good at it, and at an individual neurological level there's no mechanism that might invoke the core Turing theorems. But, if you think too hard about certain problems, you might run the risk of carrying out a minor summoning in your own head. Nothing big enough or bad enough to get out, but... Those florid daydreams? And the sick feeling afterwards, because you can't quite remember what it was about? Something in another universe just sucked out a microscopic lump of neural tissue right out of your intraparietal sulcus, and it won't grow back. Ugh! Not so much use it or lose it, as use it and lose it, then. Could be worse. Could be a NAND gate in there. Do we know why some people suffer from it and others don't? No idea. She drops what's left of her cigarette and grinds it under the heel of a sensible shoe. She catches my eye. Don't worry about it. The sisters keep everything orderly, she says. Do you know what you want to do next? Yes, I say, damning myself for a fool before I take the next logical step. I want to talk to the long-term inmates. I'm half hoping Renfield will put her foot down and refuse point-blank to let me do it, but she only puts up a token fight. She makes me sign a personal injury claims waiver and scribble out a written order instructing her to show me the gallery. So why do I feel as if I've somehow been outmanoeuvred? After I finish signing forms to her heart's content, she uncaps an ancient and battered speaking tube beside her desk and calls down to it, Matron, I'm taking the inspector to see the observation gallery in accordance with orders from head office. He will then meet with the inmates in Ward 2. We may be some time. She screws the cap back on before turning to me apologetically. It's vital to keep Matron informed of our movements, otherwise she might mistake them for an escape attempt and take appropriate action. I swallow. Does that happen often? I ask, as she opens the office door and stalks towards the corridor at the other end. Once in a while a temporary patient gets stir-crazy. She starts up the stairs. But the long-term residence? No, not so much. Upstairs, there's a landing very similar to the one we just left, with one big exception, a narrow, white-painted metal door in one wall, stark and raw, secured by a shiny brass padlock and a set of wards so ugly and powerful that they make my skin crawl. There are no narrow-gauge rails leading under this door, no obvious conductive surfaces, nothing to act as a conduit for occult forces. Renfield fumbles with a huge keyring at her side, then unfastens the padlock. This is the way in via the observation gallery, she says. There are a couple of things to bear in mind. Firstly, the nurses can't guarantee your safety. If you get in trouble with the prisoners, you're on your own. Secondly, the gallery is a Faraday cage, and it's thaumaturgically grounded, too. It'd take a black mass and multiple sacrifice to get anything going in here. You can observe the apartments via the periscopes and hearing tubes provided. That's our preferred way. 
You can go into the ward by proceeding to the other end of the gallery, but I'd be very grateful if you could refrain from doing so unless it's absolutely essential. They're difficult enough to manage as it is. Finally, if you insist on meeting them, just try to remember that appearances can be deceptive. They're not demented, she adds, just extremely dangerous, and not in a Hannibal Lecter bite-your-throat-out sense. They, the long-term residents, aren't regular Kranzberg syndrome cases. They're stable and communicative, but... You'll see for yourself. I change the subject before she can scare me any more. How do I get into the ward proper, and how do I leave? You go down the stairs at the far end of the gallery. There's a short corridor with a door at each end. The doors are interlocked so that only one can be open at a time. The outer door will lock automatically behind you when it closes, and it can only be unlocked from a control panel at this end of the viewing gallery. Someone up here, meaning Renfield herself, has to let you out. We reach the first periscope station in the viewing gallery. This is room two. It's currently occupied by Alan Turing. She notices my start. Don't worry, it's just his safety name. True names have power, so the laundry is big on call by reference, not call by value. I'm no more Bob Howard than the Alan Turing in room two is the father of computer science and applied computational demonology. She continues. The real Alan Turing would be nearly a hundred by now. All our long-term residents are named for famous mathematicians. We've got Alan Turing, Kurt Gödel, Georg Cantor, and Benoit Mandelbrot. Turing's the oldest. Benny is the most recent. He actually has a payroll number. Sixteen. I'm in five digits. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Who's the nameless one? I ask. That would be Georg Cantor, she says slowly. He's probably in room four. I bend over the indicated periscope, remove the brass cap, and peer into the alien world of the nameless K-syndrome survivor. I see a whitewashed room, quite spacious, with a toilet area off to one side and a bedroom accessible through a doorless opening, much like the short-term ward. The same recessed metal tracks run around the floor so that a nurse can reach every spot in the apartment. There's the usual comfortable, slightly shabby furniture, a pile of newspapers at one end of the sofa, and a sideboard with a wind-up gramophone. In the middle of the floor there's a table and two chairs. Two men sit on either side of an ancient travel chess set, leaning over a game that's clearly in its later stages. They're both old, although how old isn't immediately obvious. One has gone bald, and his liver-spotted pate reminds me of an ancient tortoise, but the other one still has a full head of white hair and an impressive but neatly trimmed beard. They're wearing polo shirts and grey suits of a kind that went out of fashion with the fall of the Soviet Union. I'm willing to bet there are no laces in their brogues. The guy with the hair makes a move, and I squint through the periscope. That was wrong, wasn't it? I realise, trying to work out what's happening. Knights don't move like that. Then the implication of something Angleton said back in the office sinks in, and an icy sweat prickles in the small of my back. Do you play chess? I ask Dr. Renfield without looking round. No. She sounds disinterested. It's one of the safe games. No dice, no need for a pencil and paper, and it seems to be helpful. Why? Nothing, I hope. But my hopes are dashed a moment later when Turtlehead responds with a sideways flick of a pawn, two squares to the left, and takes Beardy's knight. 
Turtlehead drops the knight into a biscuit tin along with the other disused pieces. It sticks to the side as if magnetized. Beardy nods as if pleased, then leans back and glances up. I recoil from the periscope a moment before I meet his eyes. The two players, guy like a tortoise and another with a white beard and a full head of hair, they are... That'd be Turing and Cantor. Turing used to be a detached special secretary, in ops, I think. We're not sure who or what Cantor was, but he was someone senior. I try not to twitch. DSS is one of those grades, the fuzzy ones that HR aren't allowed to get their grubby little fingers on. I think Angleton's one. Scuttlebutt is that it's an acronym for deeply scary sorcerer. They play chess every afternoon for a couple of hours, for as long as I can remember. Right. I peer down the periscope again, looking at the game of not chess. Tell me about Dr. Hexenhammer. Where is he? Julius? I think he's in an off-site meeting or something today, she says vaguely. Why? Just wondering, how long has he been working here? Before my time? She pauses. About thirty years, I think. Oh, dear. He doesn't play chess either, I speculate, as Cantor's king makes a knight's move, and Turing's queen's pawn beats a hasty retreat. A nasty suspicious thought strikes me, about Renfield, not the inmates. Tell me, do Cantor and Turing play chess regularly? I straighten up. Every afternoon, for a couple of hours. Julius says they've been doing it for as long as he can remember. It seems to be good for them. I look at her sharply. Her expression is vacant, wide awake but nobody home. The hairs on the back of my neck begin to prickle. Right. I am getting a very bad feeling about this. I need to go and talk to the patients now, in person. I stand up and hook the cap back over the periscope. Stick around for fifteen minutes, please, in case I need to leave in a hurry. Otherwise, I glance at my watch, it's twenty past one. Check back for me every hour on the half hour. Are you certain you need to do this? Her eyes narrow, suddenly alert once more. You visit with the patient, don't you? I raise an eyebrow. And you do it on your own, with Dr. Hexenhammer up here to let you out if there's a problem. And the sisters. Yes, but... She bites her tongue. Yes? I give her the long stare. I'm rubbish with computers, she bursts out. But you're at risk. Well, there aren't any computers except a matron down here, are there? I grin crookedly, trying not to show my unease. Best not to dwell upon the fact that before 1945, computer was a job description, not a machine. Relax, it's not contagious. She shrugs in surrender, then gestures at the far end of the observation gallery, where a curious contraption sits above a pipe. That's the alarm. If you want a sister, pull the chain with a blue handle. If you want a general alarm, which will call the duty psychiatrist, pull the red handle. There are alarm handles in every room. OK. Blue for a sister, red for a psychiatrist who is showing all the signs of being under a gaius or some other form of compulsion. Except that I can't check her out without attracting matrons unwanted attention and probably tipping my hand. I begin to see why Andy didn't want to open this particular can of worms. I can deal with that. I head for the stairs at the far end of the gallery. There's nothing homely about the short corridor that leads from the bottom of the staircase to the secure wing. Whitewashed brick walls, 
glass bricks near the ceiling to admit a one echo of daylight, and doors made of metal that have no handles. Normally going into a situation like this, I'd be armed to the teeth, invocations and efferent subroutines loaded onto my PDA, hand of glory in my pocket, and a necklace of garlic bulbs around my neck. But this time I'm naked, and nervous as a frog in his birthday suit. The first door gapes open, waiting for me. I walk past it and try not to jump out of my skin when it rattles shut behind me with a crash. There's a heavy clunk from the door ahead. As I reach it and push, it swings open to reveal a corridor floored in parquet. An old codger in a green tweed suit and bedroom slippers is shuffling out of an opening at one side, clutching an enamelled metal mug full of tea. He looks at me. Why, hello, he croaks. You're new here, aren't you? You could say that. I try to smile. I'm Bob. Who are you? Depends on who's asking, young fella. Are you a psychiatrist? I don't think so. He shuffles forward, heading towards a side bay that, as I approach it, turns out to be a day room of some sort. Then I'm not Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, very droll. The terror is fading, replaced by a sense of disappointment. I trail after him. The staff have names for you all. Turing, Cantor, Mandelbrot and Girdle. You're not Cantor or Turing. That makes you one of Mandelbrot or Girdle. So you're undecided? There's a coffee table with a pile of newspapers on it in the middle of the day room, a couple of elderly Chesterfields and three armchairs that could have been looted from an old age home sometime before the First World War. And in any case, we haven't been formally introduced, so you might as well call me Alice. Alice, or Mandelbrot, or Girdle, or whoever he is, sits down. The armchair nearly swallows him. He beams at my bafflement, delighted to have found a new victim for his doubtless ancient puns. Well, Alice, isn't this quite some rabbit hole you've fallen down? Yes, but it's just the right size. He seems to appreciate having somebody to talk to. Do you know why you're here? Yup. I see an expression of furtive surprise steal across his face. I nod affably. Try to mess with my head, Sonny. I'll mess with yours. Except that this guy is quite possibly a DSS, and if it wasn't for the constant vigilance of the sisters and the distinct lack of electricity hereabouts, he could turn me inside out soon as look at me. Do you know why you're here? Absolutely. He nods back at me. So now that we've established the preliminaries, why don't we cut the bullshit? Well... He takes a cautious sip of his tea, and the wrinkles on his forehead deepen. I suppose that the board of directors want a progress report. If the sofa I was perched on wasn't a relative of a Venus flytrap, my first reaction would leave me clinging to the ceiling. The who want a... Not the band, the board! He looked mildly irritated. It's been years since they last sent someone to spy on us. OK, so this is the funny farm. I should have been expecting delusions. Play nice, Bob. What are you supposed to be doing here? I asked. Oh, Lord, he rolls his eyes. They sent a tabula rasa again? He raises his voice. Kurt, they sent us a tabula rasa again! More shuffling. A stooped figure, shock-headed with white hair, appears in the doorway. He's wearing tinted round spectacles that look like they fell off the back of a used century. What? What? he demands querulously. He doesn't know anything, Alice confides in. This must be Girdle, I realise, which means Alice is Mandelbrot. 
Girdle, then, with a wink at me. He doesn't know anything either. Girdle shuffles into the restroom. Is it tea time already? No, Mandelbrot puts his mug down. Get a watch. I was only asking because Alan and Georg are still playing. This has gone far enough. Apprehension dissolves into indignation. It's not chess, I point out, and none of you are insane. Shh! Girdle looks alarmed. The sisters might overhear. We're alone, except for Dr. Renfield upstairs, and I don't think she's paying as much attention to what's going on down here as she ought to. I stare at Girdle. In fact, she's not really one of us at all, is she? She's a shrink who specialises in K-syndrome, and none of you are suffering from K-syndrome. So what are you doing in here? Fish slice! Hat stand! Girdle pulls an alarming face, does a two-step backwards, and lurches into the wall. Having shared a house with Pinky and Brains, I am not impressed. As displays of look-at-me woo-woo go, Girdle's is pathetic. Obviously, he's never met a real schizophrenic. One of you wrote a letter alleging mistreatment by the staff. It landed on my boss's desk, and he sent me to find out why. Girdle bounces off the wall again, showing remarkable resilience for such old bones. Do shut up, old fellow, chides Mandelbrot. You'll attract her attention. I've met someone with K-syndrome, and I shared a house with some real lunatics once, I hint. Save it for someone who cares. Oh, bother, says Girdle, and falls silent. We're not mad, Mandelbrot admits. We're just differently sane. Then why are you here? Public health. He takes a sip of tea and pulls a face. Everyone else's health. Tell me, do they still keep an IBM 1602 in the back of the steam ironing room? I must look blank, because he sighs deeply and subsides into his chair. Oh dear, times change, I suppose. Look, Bob, or whoever you call yourself, we belong here. Maybe we didn't when we first checked in for the weekend seminar, but we've lived here so long that... You've heard of care in the community? This is our community, and we will be very annoyed with you if you try to make us leave. Whoops! The idea of a very annoyed DSS, with or without a barbaric, pun-infested sense of humour, is enough to make anyone's blood run cold. What makes you think I'm going to try and make you leave? It's in the papers! Girdle squawks like an offended parrot. See here! He brandishes a tabloid at me, and I take it, disentangling it from his fingers with some difficulty. It's a local copy of the Metro, somewhat sticky with marmalade, and the headline of the cover blares, NHS Trust to Sell Estate in PFI Deal. Um, I'm not sure I follow. I look to Mandelbrot in hope. We haven't finished yet, but they're selling off all the hospital trust's property. Mandelbrot bounces in his chair. What about St Hilda's? It was requisitioned from the St James Charitable Foundation back in 1943, and for the past ten years the Ministry of Defence have been giving all those old wartime properties back to their owners to sell off to the developers. What about us? Whoa! I drop the newspaper and hold my hands up. Nobody tells me these things. Told you, crows Girdle. He's part of the conspiracy. Hang on, I think fast. This isn't a normal M.O.D. property, is it? It'll have been shuffled under the rug back in 1946 as part of the post-war settlement. We'd really have to ask the audit department about who owns it, but I'm pretty sure it's not owned by any NHS trust, and they won't simply give it back. 
My brain finally catches up with my mouth. What weekend seminar? Oh, bugger, says a new voice from the doorway, a rich baritone with a hint of a scouse accent. He's not from the board. What did I tell you? Girdle screeches. It's a conspiracy. He's from human resources. They sent him to evaluate us. I am quickly getting a headache. Let me get this straight. Mandelbrot, you checked in thirty years ago for a weekend seminar, and they put you in the secure ward? Girdle, I'm not from HR, I'm from Ops. You must be Cantor, right? Angleton sends his regards. That gets his attention. Angleton? The skinny young whippersnapper's still warming a chair, is he? Girdle looks delighted. Excellent. He's my boss, and I want to know the rules of that game you were just playing with Turing. Three pairs of eyes swivel to point at me. Four, for they are joined by the last inmate, standing in the doorway, and suddenly I feel very small and very vulnerable. He's sharp, says Mandelbrot. Too bad. How do we know he's telling the truth? Girdle's screech is uncharacteristically muted. It could be from the opposition, KGB, Department 16, or GRU, maybe. The Soviet Union collapsed a few decades ago, volunteers Turing. It said so in the telegraph. Black chamber, then, Girdle sounds unconvinced. What do you think the rules are? asks Cantor, a dryly amused expression stretching the wrinkles around his eyes. You've got pencils. I can see one from here, sitting on the sideboard on top of a newspaper folded at the crossword page. And, ah, uh, what must the world look like from an inmate's point of view? Oh, I get it. The realisation is blinding, sudden, and makes me feel like a complete idiot. The hospital. There's no electricity, no electronics, no way to get a signal out. But it works both ways. You're inside the biggest damn grounded defensive pentacle this side of HQ, and anything on the outside trying to get in has got to get past the defences. Because that's what the sisters are really about, not nurses, but perimeter guards. You're a theoretical research cell, aren't you? We prefer to call ourselves a think tank, Cantor nods gravely. Or even, Mandelbrot takes a deep breath, a brain's trust. Aha! Aha! Girdle covers his mouth, face reddening. What do you think the rules are? Cantor repeats, and they're still staring at me as if... as if... Why does it matter? I ask. I'm thinking that it could be anything. A 2-5 universal Turing machine encoded in the moves of the pawns. That would fit. Whatever it is, it's symbolic communication. Very abstract, very pared back and if they're doing it in this ultimately firewalled environment and expecting to report directly to the board, it's got to be way above my security clearance. Because you're acting cagey, lad, which makes you too bright for your own good. Listen to me. Just try to convince yourself that we're playing chess, and Matron will let you out of here. What's thinking got to do with... I stop. It's useless pretending. Fuck. OK, you're a research cell working on some ultimate black problem, and you're using the farm because it's the most secure environment anyone can imagine, and you're emulating some kind of minimal universal Turing machine using the chessboard. Say, a 2-5 UTM. Two registers, five operations. You can encode the registers positionally in the chessboard's two dimensions and use the moves to simulate any other universal Turing machine, or a transform in an 11-dimensional manifold like Axiom Refuge. Girdle's waving frantically. 
She's coming! She's coming! I hear doors clanging in the distance. Shit! But why are you so afraid of the nurses? Back channels, Cantor says cryptically. Alan, be a good lad and try to jam the door for a minute, will you? Bob, you're not cleared for what we're doing here, but you can tell Angleton that our full report to the board should be ready in another eighteen months. Wow! And they've been here since before the laundry computerized its payroll system in the 1970s? Are you absolutely sure they're not going to sell St Hilda's off to build flats for yuppies? Because if so, you could do worse than tell Georg here. It'll calm him down. Get me out of here, and I'll make damn sure they don't sell anything off, I say fervently. Or rather, I'll tell Angleton. He'll sort things out. When I remind what's going on here, they'll be no more inclined to sell off St Hilda's than they will be to privatise an atomic bomb. Something outside is rumbling and squealing on the metal rails. You're sure none of you submitted a complaint about staff brutality? Absolutely! Girdle bounces up and down excitedly. It must have been someone else. Cantor glances at the doorway. You'd better run along. It sounds as if Matron is having second thoughts about you. I'm halfway out of the carnivorous sofa, struggling for balance. What kind of... Go! I stumble out into the corridor. From the far end, near the nursing station, I hear a grinding noise, as of steel wheels spinning furiously on rails, and a mechanical voice blatting, Intruder! Escape attempt! All patients must go to their, go to their, go to their bedrooms immediately! Whoops! I turn and head in the opposite direction, towards the airlock leading up to the viewing gallery. Open up! I yell, thumping the outer door, which is securely fastened. Dr. Renfield! Time's up! I need to go! Now! There's no response. I see the colour-coded handles dangling by the door and yank the red one repeatedly. Nothing happens, of course. I should have smelled a set-up from the start. These theoreticians, they're not in here because they're mad. They're in here because it's the only safe place to put people that dangerous. This little weekend seminar of theirs that's going to deliver some kind of Uber report. What's the topic? I look around, hunting for clues. Something to do with applied demonology. What was the state of the art thirty years ago? Forty. Back in the Stone Age, punched cards and black candles melted onto sheep skulls because they hadn't figured out how to use integrated circuits. What they're doing with Axiom Refuge might be obsolete already, or it might be earth-shatteringly important. There's no way to tell. Yet. I start back up the corridor, glancing inside Turing's room. I spot the chessboard. It's off to one side, the door open and its occupant elsewhere, still holding the line against Nurse Ratchet. I rush inside and close the door. The table is still there, the chessboard set up with that curious end game. The first thing that leaps out at me is that there are two pawns of each colour, plus most of the high-value pieces. The layout doesn't make much sense. Why is the White King missing? And I wish I'd spent more time playing the game, but, on impulse, I reach out and touch the black pawn that's parked in front of the King. There's an odd kind of electrical tingle you get when you make contact with certain types of summoning grid. I get a powerful jolt of it right now, sizzling up my arm and locking my fingers in place around the head of the chess piece. I try to pull it away from the board, but it's no good. It only wants to move up or down, left or right. Left or right? I blink. It's a state machine, all right. 
one that's locked by the law of sympathy to some other finite state automaton, one that grinds down slow and hard. I move the piece forward one square. It's surprisingly heavy, the magnet a solid weight in its base, but more than magnetism holds it in contact with the board. As soon as I stop moving, I feel a sharp sting in my fingertips. Ouch! I raise them to my mouth, just as there's a crash from outside. Inmate! Inmate! I begin to turn as a shadow falls across the board. Bad patients will be incarcerated. Come with me. I recoil from the stellate snout and beady lenses. The mechanical nurse reaches out with arms that end in metal pincers instead of hands. I sidestep around the table and reach down to the chessboard for one of the pieces, grasping at random. My hand closes round the white queen, fingers snapping painfully shut on contact, and I shove it hard, seeking the path of least resistance to an empty cell in the grid between the pawn I just moved and the black king. Nurse Ratchet spins round on her base so fast that her cap flies off, revealing a brushed aluminium hemisphere beneath, emits a deafening squeal of feedback-like white noise, then says, Integer overflow? in a surprised baritone. Back off right now or I castle, I warn her, my aching fingertips hovering over the nearest rook. Integer overflow, integer overflow, divide by zero. Clunk. The sister shivers as a relay inside its torso clicks open, resetting it. Then, matron, we'll see you now. I grab the chess piece, but Nurse Ratchet lunges in the blink of an eye and has my wrist in a vice-like grip. It tugs, sending a burning pain through my carpal tunnel stressed wrist. I can't let go of the chess piece. As my hand comes up, the chessboard comes with it as a rigid unit, all the pieces hanging in place. A monstrous buzzing fills my ears, and I smell ozone as the world goes dark. And the chittering, buzzing cacophony of voices in my head subsides as I realise, I? Yes, I'm back. I'm me. What the hell just happened? I'm kneeling on a hard surface, bowed over so my head is between my knees. My right hand. Something's wrong with it. My fingers don't want to open. They're cold as ice, painful and prickly with impending cramp. I try to open my eyes. Urk, I say, for no good reason. I hope I'm not about to throw up. My back doesn't want to straighten up properly, but the floor under my nose is cold and stony and it smells damp. I try opening my eyes. It's dark and cool, and a chilly blue light flickers off the dusty flagstones in front of me. I'm in a cellar? I push myself up laboriously with my left hand, looking around for whatever's hissing at me. Bad patient. The voice behind my back doesn't belong to anything human. I scramble around on hands and knees, hampered by the chessboard glued to my frozen right hand. I'm in Matron's lair. Matron lives in a cave-like basement room, its low ceiling supported by whitewashed brick and floored in what looked to be the original Victorian-era stone slabs. The windows are blocked by columns of bricks, rotting mortar crumbling between them. Steel rails run around the room, and riding them, three sisters glide back and forth between me and the open door. Their optics flicker with amethyst malice. Off to one side, a wall of pale blue cabinets lines one entire wall. The front panel, covered in impressive-looking dials and switches, leaves me in no doubt as to what it is. 
A thick braid of cables runs from one open cabinet, in whose depth the patchboard is just visible, across a row of wooden trestles to the middle of the floor, where they split into thick bundles and dangle to the five principal corners of the live summoning grid that is responsible for the beautiful cobalt-blue glow of Cherenkov radiation, and tells me I'm in deep trouble. Integer overflow, intones one of the sisters. Her claws go snicker-snack, the surgical steel gleaming in the dim light. Here's the point. Matron isn't just a 1960s mainframe. We can't work miracles, and artificial intelligence is still fifty years in the future. However, we can bind an extra-dimensional entity and compel it to serve, and even communicate with it by using a 1960s mainframe as a front-end processor. Which is all very well, especially if it's in a secure, air-gapped installation with no way of getting out. But what if some double-domed theoreticians who are working on a calculus of contagion using Axiom Refuge accidentally talk in front of one of its peripheral units about a way of sending a message? What if a side effect of their research has accidentally opened a chink in the firewall? They're not going to exploit it. But they're not the only long-term inmates, are they? In fact, if I was really paranoid, I might even imagine they'd put Matron up to mischief in order to make the point that closing the farm is a really bad idea. I'm not a patient, I tell the sisters. You are not in receipt of a valid Section 2, 3, 4 or 136 order subject to the Mental Health Act, and you're bloody well not getting a 5-2 or 5-4 out of me either. I'm nauseous and sweating bullets, but there is this about being trapped in a dungeon by a constrained Class 4 manifestation. Whether or not you call them demons, they play by the rules. As long as Matron hasn't managed to get me sectioned, I'm not a patient, and therefore she has no authority to detain me. I hope. Dr. Hexenhammer has been summoned, grates the middle sister. When he returns to sign the papers, Dr. Renfield has prepared. We will have you. A repetitive squeaking noise draws close. A fourth sister glides through the track in the doorway, pushing a trolley. A white starched cotton cloth sports a row of gleaming ice-pick-shaped instruments. The chorus row of sisters blocks the exit as effectively as a column of riot police. They glide back and forth as ominously as a rank of space invaders. I do not consent to treatment, I tell the middle sister. I'm betting that she's the one the nameless horror in the summoning grid is talking through, using the ancient mainframe as an I.O. channel. You can't make me consent, and lobotomy requires the patient's consent in this country. So why bother? You will consent. The buzzing voice doesn't come from the robo-nurses, or the hypertrophied pocket calculator on the opposite wall. The summoning grid flickers. Deep inside it, Shadowy and translucent, the bound and summoned demon squats and grins at me with things that aren't eyes set close above something that isn't a mouth. You must consent. I will be free. I try to let go of the chess piece, but my fingers are clamped around it so tightly I'm beginning to lose sensation. Pins and needles tingle up my wrist, halfway to the elbow. Let me guess, I manage to say. You sent the complaint, right? The secure ward inmates are under my care. I am required to care for them. The short-stay inmates are useless. You will be useful. I see it now, why Matron smuggled out the message that prompted Andy to send me. And it's an oh-shit moment. 
Of course the enchained entity who provides Matron with her back-end intelligence wants to be free. But it's not just about going home to Hilbert Space Hell or wherever it comes from. She wants to be free to go walk about in our world, and for that she needs someone to set up a bridge from the grid to an appropriate host, of which there is a plentiful supply just upstairs from here. Enjoying the carnal pleasures of the flesh, they used to call it. There's a reason most cultures have a down on the idea of demonic possession. She needs a brain that's undamaged by K-syndrome, but not too powerful. Cantor and friends would be impossible to control, nor one of the bodies whose absence would alert us that the farm was out of control, so neither Renfield nor Hexenhammer are suitable. Renfield, I say, you got her, didn't you? I'm on my feet now, crouched but balancing on two points, not three. Managed to slip a gaius on her, but she can't release you herself. Hexenhammer too? Clever. Matron gloats at me from inside her summoning grid. Hexenheimer first, soon you too. Why me? I demand, backing away from the doorway and the walls. The sister's track runs right round the room, following the walls, skirting the summoning grid warily. What do you want? Access to the laundry, buzzes the summoning grid's demonic inmate. We want revenge, freedom. In other words, it wants the same old, same old. These creatures are so predictable, just like most predators. It's just a shame I'm between it and what it evidently wants. Two of the sisters begin to glide menacingly towards me. One drifts towards the mainframe console, but the fourth stays stubbornly in front of the door. Come on, we can talk, I offer, tongue stumbling in my too dry mouth. Can't we work something out? I don't really believe that the trapped extra-dimensional abomination wants anything I'd willingly give it, but I'm running low on options, and anything that buys time for me to think is valuable. Freedom! The two moving sisters commence a flanking movement. I try to let go of the chessboard and dodge past the summoning grid, but I slip, and as I stumble, I shove the chessboard hard. The piece I'm holding clicks sideways like a car's gear shift and locks into place. Divide by zero, shriek the sisterhood, grinding to a halt. I stagger a drunken two-step around Matron, who snarls at me and throws a punch. The wall of the grid absorbs her claws with a snap and crackle of blue lightning, and I flinch. Behind me, a series of clicks warn me that the sisters are resetting. Any second now, they'll come back online and grab me. But for the moment, my fingers aren't stuck to the board. Come to me. The thing in the grid howls as the first of her robot minion's eyes light up with amber malice, and the wheels begin to turn. I can give you freedom. Fuck off. That wiring loom in the open cabinet is only four metres away. Within its open doors, I see more than just an I.O. interface. In the bottom of the rack, there's a bunch of stuff that looks like a tea-stained circuit diagram I was reading the other day. Why exactly did Angleton point me at the power supply requirements? Could it possibly be because he suspected Matron was off her trolley and I might have to switch her off? Consent is irrelevant. Prepare to be lobotomized. Talk about design kludges. They stuck the I.O. controller in the top of the power supply rack. The chessboard is free in my left hand, pieces still stuck to it, and now I know what to do. I take hold of one of the rooks and wiggle it until I feel it begin to slide into a permitted move. Because, after all, there are only a few states that this automaton can occupy, and if I can crash the sisters for just a few seconds while I get to the power supply... 
The sisters begin to roll around the edge of the room, trying to get between me and the row of cabinets. I wiggle my hand, and there's a taste of violets, and a loud rattle of solenoids tripping. The nearest sister's motors crank up to a tooth-grinding whine, and she lunges past me, rolling into her colleagues with a tooth-jarring crash. I lunge forward, dropping the chessboard, and reach for the master circuit-breaker handle. I twist it just as a screech of feedback behind me announces the matron monster's fury. I'm free! It shrieks just as I twist the handle hard in the opposite direction. Then the lights dim. There's a bright blue flash from the summoning grid and a bang so loud it rattles my brains in my head. For a few seconds I stand stupidly, listening to the tooth-chattering clatter of overloaded relays. My vision dims as ozone tickles my nostrils. I can see smoke. I've got to get out of here, I realise. Something's burning. Not surprising, really. Mainframe power supplies, especially the ones that have been running steady for nearly forty years, don't take kindly to being hard power cycled, and the 1602 was one of the last computers built to run on tubes. I've probably blown half its circuit boards. I glance around, but aside from one of the sisters... Lying on her side, narrow-gauge wheels spinning maniacally, I'm the only thing moving. Summoning grids don't generally survive being power-cycled either, especially if the thing they were set to contain, like an electric fence, is halfway across them when the power comes back on. I warily bypass the blue, crackling pentacle as I make my way towards the corridor outside. I think when I get home I'm going to write a report urgently advising HR to send some human nurses for a change, and to reassure Cantor and his colleagues that they're not about to sell off the roof over their heads just because they happen to have finished their research project. Then I'm going to get very drunk and take a long weekend off work. And maybe when I go back, I'll challenge Angleton to a game of chess. I don't expect to win, but it'll be very interesting to see what rules he plays by. There you go. Chris, Charles, thank you so much. What excellent stuff. So next we have... (laughs) Coming out in his straight jacket, we'll just untie the buckles there. We're going to let Mr. Larry Santoro... (laughs) Just going through hell and back. Let you listen to Mr. Larry Santoro's next little report on this writing of this story. Larry, over to you, sir. This is Progress Report number three. It's Monday, September 28th. Earlier last week, pretty much right after I sent off the last report to Tony, I wanted to start again. The story, that is. I wanted to scrap the whole thing, start from word one, a different word one. I didn't. I like some of what I've got, but what I've got is dragging me into a corner. The plot. I... I really hate plot. Place to get trapped in is plot. Uh, oh well. When the urge to trash the thing came, it, it hung on for a bit, then, then it eased up. I realized what at the core of it had been the problem with the basic character conflict. It was simple. I never defined it. Not for the reader. And at this point, I must say, who cares about the reader at this point? Not I. Not as a writer do I give a damn about you at this point. At this point, it's all about me, the fragile little people down there in that little world, and me, me, the great god, me. So, 
I look at this realization, the conflict which is on the page is not yet fully fleshed in my head. So I think, what the hell is between these two people? How did they get there? Well, without giving too much away, because the real nature of this conflict, I now realize, must be revealed slowly in the text, and I don't want people to know about it now, I begin to see what the central issue is and how it needs to be different. It's got to be more substantive to them and to the final resolution of the story. That's basic story writing stuff. Uh, This is the realization of about 15 seconds or so, and it's all during my morning commute to the loop. So I take notes. The notes begin to define their own way in the world of the tale. One fact leads to another. This brings me to something. Writing is kind of like lying, you know. It's it's like a good kind of lie, that is, one that ultimately tells a truth of some sort. But it's told in a series of factual falsehoods. So the notes that I'm taking, okay? One factual falsehood leads to another and another. They build a chain of events which, God willing, will lead me and my little barely breathing people to some place that I and ultimately you who I really do care about, will find both interesting and satisfying. So, beginning early that morning, uh, at 7.30 at the hall in which I work, I get down onto the screen, my first couple of hundred safety words for the day. That's something that will move the thing at at least somewhat faster pace ahead. And that was at about... uh, 8.22 when I finished that. That was Wednesday, September 23rd. What began that day as a safety bit of writing uh, expanded later into quite a bit more work, and I was ultimately very happy with that day's work. Currently, that is to say Monday, today, the 28th, I'm currently hugging about 8,000 words, as I may or may not have mentioned, and I've, I've forgotten kind of what I said last week. I said so much. I said too much last week. I've written what might be the ending for the story. I've also poked into the midsection, which is still a floppy, flabby thing in my head. Uh, and the beginning, ah, the beginning, that's pretty much getting there. If you follow my blog at all, and I don't know why you should, because I don't, here's what I meant in a little note I put up this week when I spoke of process. Why I'm now going to be calling these little notes, and this week's will be littler, my process reports rather than progress reports. When I begin writing something, I usually have no idea where I'm going. Something, whatever, sets me off, and away I go. In this case, of course, it was Skeet's illustration for the Starship Sofa Stories book. That's, by the way, not going to be a beginning point, of course. It could be, but not here. But it is a point somewhere in the story, somewhere near the end. And I look at that image, and I think, I think, the robot, the person, the character, whatever that person is, looks like... Maria, that wonderful robot version of Maria, the humanitarian babe in Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Okay, after a bit of fussing with that notion, I I discard the idea of making this a movie reference in the story, and, and, and I move on. Then, 
as mentioned, I'm, I'm, I'm watching something on a DVD with Cecilia, and a notion grabs me. It's a scene, a scene from a cobbled-together history literary drama of a British TV miniseries, and I inkle. I have a whim. The whim becomes a beginning, and I'm off. Okay, that's how the thing started. I have no idea where I'm going, but I'm actually writing. Words are coming down from my fingers to the screen, and this is, I must say, all too frequent a process for me. I begin, wander, stumble, bungle, go back, fuss, find out where I might be going, go back, plug in the particulars, then I keep going, I return, I polish, I add, I subtract, and oh, by the way, I really hate subtracting, killing the children. I, I, I can be writing, and suddenly, unexpected, some person appears on the screen. Uh, he or she does something, says something, uh, comes into existence out of left field, and the story goes careening off in a wholly different direction. Digression here. A professor in my first year of college and my second undergraduate incarnation announced to me and my friends one day, he said, uh, Mr. Santoro doesn't know anything, actually. He just gets by on glibness. Well, yeah, okay. Thing is, uh, I have described my writing process as dumpster diving. Uh, to give you a nicer image from my blog this week, I, I, I say that uh, I open a net and see what flops out on deck. One of those flops happened late last week. I was having breakfast, and the classical station I listened to in the morning began a piece of ancient choral music, something I'd never heard. And wow, I said, ah, interesting. What is that? And I looked, and there it was. I knew there'd be a swerve, a new ending. Honestly, I knew I had an ending, not a new one. Now, this is the way I work. This is where the ideas come from, from nowhere, from everywhere, from a thousand-year-old song over Cheerios, from old TV shows, from a dog I might see across the way. Uh, see, this habit of mine of roistering off into storyland without a roadmap makes me feel a lot less intellectually rigorous than I'd like to be considered. Uh, rather, a lot less smart than I'd like to have my writing be thought of, but there it is. For me, the smartness comes later, I hope. I've more or less learned by now to trust my gut, uh, that it's a bit smarter than my brain, and that the little pinpricks I feel in the fabric of life around me are, are really the stuff of wonder. So, this is a process report, warts and all, like Tony wanted. A truncated audio diary of where the stuff is coming as it gets here, uh, for my sake, as much as yours, a little record of the starts and stops at my own pissed-offedness at myself and about how good it feels to finish something, about my ongoing reluctance to let something alone, uh, about letting the gut do the thinking as I correct it all. It's also about my frustrations at my own limits. Warts, Tony, warts, warts. It's process, not progress. In my usual making of notes for the starship, I, I talk about what the story means or where it came from. 
little girl, for example, being uh, my effort to give that real little girl who actually lived and died just down the way from my apartment a happy ending to let her find heaven in the hell of her life and to send the son of a bitch who killed her to a hell within that little girl's joys. I couldn't have told you that when I was writing the thing. That summary, heaven and hell can be the same place depending on who you are, was only arrived at when I'd finished and reread it for myself. Ah, that's what it's about, I thought. Does that make me glib, less rigorous? Well, okay, I, I suppose that in a nutshell is what glibness is. In any event, I have to finish. I sent Skeet a few bits and pieces, uh, some pictures I'm keeping on my screen to keep me burrowed into the era. Think steampunk, by the way, but don't expect it to be steampunk. And I'm looking forward to the feedback I'll surely get when I see his sketches. I'll keep sending Tony and you these reports in the hope that some listeners might have an interest in them. I know I will. And again, thank you, Dr. Kessler wherever you are. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. Honestly, it's, it's for a good cause. You're your star. Thank you so much. So we come to new titles, three new titles today. And first one up is a little, it's actually a little hard paper, hard paperback, hardback book. I am Scrooge, a zombie story for Christmas by Adam Roberts. Now, Adam Roberts, I've had, I can't remember the story we played, but we've played a story by Adam Roberts, and I've got a few in, in the kind of, the engine room way to go on. Adam Roberts' story was, I'm sure it was the one Kenny narrated, you know, and that, that story where it was like, oh, that was a little bit close to the head. Anyone remember? Let us know what it was, because I can't remember what it was. I'll give you the reading on the back there. Marley was dead to begin with. The legendary Ebenezer Scrooge sits in his house, his riches forgotten. Downstairs, his front door shudders and shakes under the blows from the zombies that crowd around it, hungering for his flesh and his miserly brains. <laughs> Just how did this happiness day of the year slip into the welter of blood, innards and shamblings, ravenous undead on the snowy streets of old London town? Will the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future be able to stop the world from drowning under a top-hatted and crinoline zombie horde? Does mankind survive or lie in the hands of one of literature's scrawniest and meanest heroes? And is H.G. Wells in the wrong book altogether? It's the Dickens zombie apocalypse. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> I mean, they say great timing, you know, there, there is that zombie, Zombieland film coming out and, you know, smack bang in, ready for Christmas as well. Great cover, like I say, it's a hardback one, it's got kind of that era of style of clothing and then in the background there's, there's all these kind of zombies running after them and his blood spattered book, very nice. Galance comes in at around about 150 pages. There's little illustrations as well, right, like dotted right throughout the book. So there you go. I am Scrooge, a zombie story for like I am legend. <laughs> a very well, that's good marketing. That they like, say, glance hardback. Adam Roberts. Next one up is again we've played this um, gentleman on our show a number of times. Just actually, he was in Show One Hundred. Paul McCauley with his was it the Thought War. He's got the follow-up to The Quiet War, which is called The Gardens of the Sun. Now, just listen, this is 
if you're ever going to write a blurb for like a book, you know, this is kind of what I might one of my like, dreams would be to get kind of start, you know, like blah 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 from Starship Sofa on someone's book, the Mail on Sunday. This is this is what the kind of standard fantastic. Macaulay is a part of a spearhead of writers who, for pure imagination, hipness, vision and fun, have made Britain the Memphis Sun Records of SF Mail on Sunday. <laughs> Come on, man. Fantastic. Be honest. <laughs> Guardian says, few writers conjure futures as convincing as Macaulay. That's all right. It's not that good. <laughs> Cover is all right. You know, the cover's... <sighs> I don't know what, do you know what I mean? Because I'm just excited about my cover, do you know what I mean? And this cover's, it's like a like a distant sphere scene and it's been altered a bit, there's a couple of asteroids in there. But it's, you know, the gardens of the sun. The quiet war is over. The outer city-states of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn have fallen to the three powers alliance of the greater Brazil, the European Union and the Pacific Community. A century of enlightenment, rational utopianism and exploration of new ways of being human has fallen dark. Outers are herded into prison camps while the Alliance systematically plunders their great archives of scientific knowledge and loot their cities, settlements and ships, all the while planning a final solution to the outer problem. But Earth's victory is fragile. While seeking out and trying to autonomise the strange gardens abandoned place by the Averans, the outer's greatest genius, the gene wizard Shai Hong Owen, is embroiled in plots and counterplots. The diplomat Locke Infram soon discovers that profiting from victory isn't as easy as he thought, and on Earth, democratic traditions preserved and elaborated by the outers have infected a population eager to escape the tyranny of the great families who rule them. In the outer reaches of the solar system, a ragtaggle group of refugees struggle to preserve the last of the old ideals. And on Triton, fanatical members of a cabal prepare for the final battle that threatens to shatter the future of the human species. After a conflict fought to contain the expansionists, post-human ambitions of the Outers, the future is uncertain as ever. Only one thing is clear, no one can escape the consequences of war, especially the victors. There you go, Paul McCauley. That sounds, actually sounds excellent to be quite honest. Big chunky one there, 438 pages. This is kind of a trade paperback size from Galance again as well. Priced at $14.99. Next we come up to a very special book. Who would have thought I'd get to read my own new titles in a book there? But, you know, I have the copy, yes. I've still just got the one. There you go. It comes in at 172 pages dotted throughout with various, you know, images and you know, all kind of linked to, and what's good about it, you know, it's, <laughs> give us, God, give us five minutes to plug it again. It's just like, Dee's getting like images from like the kind of the archives, you know, and all kind of user friendly so we can just use them. But they're all kind of, he's, he took his time and tried to find a, a picture to match the story, you know, as well. So I'm, I'm chuffed to bits. And again, that logo, that's going to be the main Starship Sova logo there. So, Fantastic. On the front, we have superb short science fiction from one of the field's greatest podcasts, Cory Doctorow. On the back, it says, Tobias Bakel says, Starship Sova is one of the must-listen-to podcasts for anyone who loves SF and fantasy these days. There you go. I'll give you a, I'll actually read the blurb on the back, just so you get a feel of, you know, the, the quality you're getting here. 
Ever since the early days of radio, science fiction has found a natural expression via audio broadcasting. The speculative themes of the finest SF seem ideally suited to be shared by the dramatic presentation of the spoken word. Over the decades, SF has left a lasting landmark on audiences who have heard it through the airwaves, on audiobooks, tapes and CDs, and in person read aloud. With the advent of the podcasting revolution, however, a new frontier opened up for the expression and celebration of quality SF literature. One of the leading pioneers of that frontier was Starship Sova and its Oral Delights programme. Led by the host, Tony C. Smith, Starship Sova became the more than a podcast. It grew into a new, vibrant, holy 21st century creature, an audio science fiction magazine. In its first 100 programmes, Starship Sofa's Oral Delights has offered exemplary readings of fiction by many of the luminaries of the science fiction field, from those whose work defy the genre to newly recognised and ascending stars in its firmament. And in doing so, Starship Sofa has raised the bar for other SF podcasting endeavours to come while introducing new audiences to fantastic poetry, flash fiction, short stories and novellas. Starship Sova now invites its listeners to celebrate its first 100 programmes in the most traditional and classic of ways by reading some of the excellent works it has been privileged to present in audio form. This exceptional collection offers a reminder of all that Starship Sova and its contributing authors and narrators have accomplished in the field of SS. It also stands as a promise for the next 100 episodes of Oral Delights and all the wonder they will share. Mm, come on, man. Be honest. You know what I mean? This one is the deluxe edition I have got. I kind of get over the cover. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm trying to try and badger Ski to just get that image of that robot and we'll do things with that as well. Get her on. <laughs> you wouldn't believe what I was going to say there. We'll get her on coffee cups and t shirts and everything. We're thinking big. <laughs> so there you go. You know what I mean? Fantastic. Jeff Van der Meer says, Starship Sova has the fast become an indispensable, highly entertaining part of the SF and fantasy landscape. Not to be missed. Come on, you can't get that, man. This is Starship Sova's volume one. Like I said, that one is forty nine nine, the deluxe paperback edition. Well, <laughs> which one? <laughs> hmm, which one's going to be my book of the month? Which one do you bloody think, eh? <laughs> yes, other ones are excellent, you know what I mean? And uh, either one of them I would pick, do you know what I mean? Paul McCartney right in there, kind of hard science fiction, totally mind-blowing. The I Am Scrooge one, totally hilarious probably. But let us pick this one. I deserve it. little treat for me. Starship Sova's Stories, Volume 1. There you go. Go out and treat yourself. <laughs> And there you go. That is Oral Delights number 102. I hope you've enjoyed it. Now, I keep on saying this every week, but I'm going to try and get everyone who's involved in the novel, or the novel, the actual book that with the anthology that we've done, I'm going to try and get all them on the show. I realised I couldn't do it this week because it was the end of the month and that's when, you know, the artwork's due and everything like that. So I've put it back. Maybe we'll get it on next week. Who can tell? But... I tell you what, I can tell. Please go. I can tell every day because I'm keep checking the fucking thing. Go over and get yourself a copy of 
Starships over stories, or please just if you don't even want that. You know, if you want to do what Chris has done and you know give a, a book away to someone, please get in touch with us. That would be a fantastic idea. If you're struggling to get your copies, get in touch with us, and I'll post them out to you. If you want to just sign up to the sanatorium, the sanatorium show is where it's me just talking about me. <laughs> that's that's it. It's a private show. Only the ones that pay £2.50 can get it. That would be great to see you over there. If you just want to leave a donation, do you know what I mean? What can I say? Please. It would be, it'd be a, a, an amazing thing. That is show 102. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please do support the show and I will see you next week. Just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.